There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is Now Playing Podcast Review of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. You have the wrong guy! Does he look like he can fight? Part of Now Playing's Avengers and Marvel Comics movie series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Never heard of them. Hosted by Arnie. You are your mother. Whether you like it or not, you are also your father. Jacob. I actually did take a little bit of martial arts as a youth, so I'm going to try and grade this fight as we're going. And Stuart. We make a good team! What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews that span the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. You still don't know when to give up, do you? I can do this all day. But be warned. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and mildly objectionable language. And guru. Whoa! Language! Listener discretion is advised. Gentlemen, you're up. We hope you enjoy the show. Showtime, a-holes! Today, we're discussing... Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, starring Simu Liu, Aquafina, Menger Zan, Bala Chen, Benedict Wong, with Michelle Yeoh, with Ben Kingsley, and Tony Leung, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and most certainly not the son my mother wishes came out of her vagina. <laughs> I knew someone was going to use that one. It's Stuart. And this is the host that always appreciates a great acting performance by an ape, Jacob. <laughs> Welcome back to Marvel again. It doesn't seem all that long. We covered Black Widow. I feel like Marvel is with us eternally now, thanks to Disney+. Plus. Well, we left Marvel very controversially behind when we did not review Loki. Mm. Around the time of the season finale, they announced Loki Season 2, and... Ongoing series are not something Now Playing has ever intended or wanted to sign on to. We do some mini-series that we think of as big movies. We did TV once with Twin Peaks, and we don't really want to get into the obligation of an ongoing series that will mean we can't cover movies, and that's what we are as a movie review podcast, so... We're not saying we'll never go back and do Loki. I hear rumors that, like, the sequel series may be the conclusion. I don't know. Hmm. But we're kind of holding off on Loki, and what if was never in our plans? What if we reviewed it? Well, it would be short. I like it, though. It's a good series. I have not watched that one. I did watch Loki, but I haven't dipped my toe into what if. All I'll say to preview my thoughts on Loki is, although I am not the biggest Tom Hiddleston fan, I think he makes a pretty good Doctor Who. And that was kind of <laughs> what the show felt like. Loki, my favorite of the 
TV series, I guess, whatever these Marvel Disney Plus things are. I do like when Marvel, you know, recently I feel like they've decided, oh, we could go weird. Like we're big enough. People trust us enough. We could go weird. <laughs> and, and so I enjoyed that aspect of Loki. It's It goes weird. It is loopy. Yeah. And I appreciate that about that. Uh, Terry Gilliam-ish sometimes. I like it. And the one thing I'll say is this is finally the television series, WandaVision, and Falcon and Winter Soldier and Loki, that if they ever made Avengers 5 and somebody says, what do you have to do in a rewatch? Every time, you know, with Star Wars, we're about to watch Rise of Skywalker and people are like, I'm going to watch a marathon. I'm like, that's a really good idea. Watch the movies. I'm going to watch episode one, two, the entire Clone Wars series, three, the entire Bad Batch series, Solo, four, Rogue One, five, six, the entire Mandalorian series. I'm like, stop. Just stop. Yeah. And the same thing with Marvel people. When Endgame's coming out, I'm going to watch Iron Man, Hulk, Iron Man 2, Captain America. I'm going to watch the Agent Carter TV series. I'm going to watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Daredevil, Iron Fist. Stop! Just stop! But Marvel has finally made TV series that I will not have eye strain rolling my eyes if somebody says, I'm going to watch Loki. I'm going to watch Falcon and Winter Soldier. I'm going to watch WandaVision. It feels to me like they're taking the comic book crossover thing when they have their events, like Secret Wars or Civil War, and all of the main story will be in the main thing, and they'll just drop lines to things that happen with a little asterisk, like, if you want to know how this happened, go read Amazing Spider-Man 352. I think that's what they're doing with the TV series. If you need to know all the details, if when we get to the movies and you're like, how the hell did this happen to Vision? Why is he white? Well, you they'll say a line, but if you really want to know, you got to go watch WandaVision. It's kind of a daunting prospect. I mentioned with Black Widow that I was starting to feel that fatigue, that it was starting to feel a weight and like homework to have to always go back and research where everyone, every character was at. Well, you don't have to. You're the newbie, Stuart. You are the one. He ain't a newbie no more. He's watched every Marvel <laughs> film. Like, he's a Marvel zombie at this point. Yes. <laughs> uh, maybe long ago I was a newbie. But I understand your point. You don't have to. It's kind of the promise of Shang-Chi is that here we're just going to pick up in an area where I don't think we've ever been before. For a while, it seemed like nothing in the movie had been connected to the MCU. Yeah, there were Easter eggs. I, I think this is a film where a lot of the Marvel comic book fans haven't been before. I mean, it's it, Shang-Chi? Who? Like, I didn't even know who this character was when it was announced. I read a comic book not all that long ago, and Spider-Man had lost his spider sense, and he was being trained by Bruce Lee. I'm sorry, Shang-Chi. <laughs> and I'm like, who the hell is this? I thought it was Iron Fist for like three issues. Iron Fist would come out a year after this Shang-Chi would premiere in 1973. Here's the thing. You're not wrong with Bruce Lee because 70s, what becomes huge in the States? Kung Fu movies, Be you know, mostly because of Bruce Lee. But we start getting all those imports from China. And so Marvel wants to get in on that. And so who do they go to? Well, Kung Fu is this new TV series. Let's get the rights to that and make it into a comic. Problem is, Kung Fu, that's a Warner Brothers property. And who does Warner Brothers own? DC Comics. And so they go to, and I don't know who this author is, Sax Romer, who apparently created the pulp villain, Dr. Fu Manchu. Oh, very progressive. Yeah, well, we'll get into this comic in a little bit here. But yes, they buy the rights to that character and they create a unnamed son for him, which wasn't, I guess, in the novels. 
and that son will become Shang-Chi. And, and the whole gimmick was he was raised by Dr. Fu Manchu to be the greatest fighter. And I think he still is like the greatest like fighter in the Marvel Universe, but as just like a human being, like he doesn't have an iron suit. He doesn't have magic powers. We'll talk about these 10 rings. But yes, he is the son of Fu Manchu, raised to be a deadly assassin. Thinks he's a good guy and then learns his dad's bad. And like, you'll see a form of that origin story in this film that we're going to talk about. For sure. But yeah, once they lost the rights or, or gave up the rights for Fu Manchu, they changed his name and Shang-Chi became his own thing. He lasted a good 10 years, like in the comics, like with his first run of comics. But yes, he's popped in and out. Like you said, Arnie, he popped up in that Spider-Verse storyline. And of course, he's got a current series going now because there's a movie to promote. But a, a character, again, one one that was very much lost on me. I was an Iron Fist fan, but he would come out in 1974 with Marvel. Yeah. Shang-Chi, when I saw that he had over a hundred issue run in his own comic, I was shocked because I honestly never heard of him. I read Marvel encyclopedias of characters, and if this character was in it, I skipped him. I do not know anything about him coming into this movie. So why are they doing it? That's the question to ask. If he's so obscure that nobody is a fan, why is he the follow-up to Black Widow's long-in-the-making solo film? I feel like we're going to be saying this with Eternals, too. Like, why these characters? Yeah, because both Shang-Chi and then Eternals are real out of left field for me. Why would you pick these? I mean, they still got a ton of great characters to pick from. Not that these characters aren't great. That's not what I'm saying. But ones that have more name recognition. True, but I was thinking about this. What makes a character A-list, what gives a character name recognition from the comics, is when he grows beyond the comics and gets a movie. You know, I think about Iron Man. Everybody before 2008 was, oh boy, Iron Man, Marvel, you're betting the house on Iron Man? If you remember, Marvel took its 10 greatest characters to a bank. That it had left. The 10 it had left. So not Spider-Man, not X-Men. But it took its 10 greatest remaining characters to a bank and said, we need a load of money to make five movies. And if we don't make the money we think we're going to make, you own these characters. Shang-Chi was one of those characters they took and bet to the bank, along with Captain America and Thor and Iron Man. But Iron Man wasn't A-list until he had a movie. Incredible Hulk, would he matter if Lou Ferrigno hadn't worn green body paint? Now, Shang-Chi is A-list. Yeah, I agree. Even Captain America had a shaky history in the comics, like, as far as popularity goes. Like, yeah, Spider-Man more popular than Captain America. How, I don't know. What I'm hearing you say is sometimes you bet on the characters. I would also argue sometimes you make the movie because there's a star that's calling for it. And let's just face it, up until recently, we've had a dearth of Asian or Asian-American stars that play in Hollywood. I feel like in the last 10 years, certainly with the success of Crazy Rich Asians, we are now seeing a larger and larger stable of actors who could potentially play a Asian superhero. And so you'd think maybe it would be developed for someone like that. Let's be crass. China gives a lot of money to Hollywood. Okay, thank you for getting there. <laughs> they filmed extra scenes for Iron Man 3 with Chinese stars in the Chinese language right. that they didn't even include on the American Blu-ray of Iron Man 3. I had to go to YouTube to see those scenes subtitled. And so it makes business sense to court China, who is tightening down these days. You know, they're having a big anniversary this year. They're letting fewer American films in than ever before. 
But man, what a Cinderella story for Star Simulu. Is he actually a car valet? Like, I've never seen this guy before. Like, was he just parking the right guy's car and they said, you're it? If you watched Kim's Convenience, he was on that. What is that? It was a sitcom on Netflix about some Asians running a convenience store. Wow. I watched it. I actually prefer Fresh Off the Boat. I tried an episode of Kim's Convenience and just didn't get through it. Yeah, Fresh Off the Boat, I know. That was essentially a Fox show. I was there at the time they were making. I actually met that cast. Yeah, get someone from there, I guess. But 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 none of them tweeted Kevin Feige and said, Hey, Kevin, when are we going to talk Shang-Chi? Okay. Literally, Simu Lu tweeted that. And like two years later, he's announced as the role. Now, Feige said they were going to do this movie anyway. It's a cute coincidence that Simu Lu tweeted that. But Simulu came in and was able to do backflips and land in the exact hero pose Black Widow was doing in her movie. And he had the acting ability. They had, you know, Marvel never hires anyone without it feeling like American Idol, where it's down to the two and who's gonna win finds out at the very end. But he did tweet them and was like, when can we start Shang-Chi? And now here he is, Shang-Chi, which he's been acting since like, 2012. That's not that long ago. I feel like this is an awfully lucky break for an actor who, I'll just call it out, hadn't earned the leading man status yet. Like, he wasn't a star in China? No. he All of his work was American. But was Chris Hemsworth a star before Thor? I mean, Marvel makes these bets. He was the guy at the start of J.J. Star Trek, and that was it. Tom Holland, too. Yeah, I'll I'll give you that. You're absolutely right. Occasionally, they can mint a star, but it really feels like you mentioned American Idol. It does feel like a reality contest of who wants to be the next Marvel hero that they wound up with him. I didn't know who Simu Liu was before this, but I did look up, like, does he know Kung Fu? Can he do this kind of stuff? And he does have that experience, which would put me a little bit at ease, especially after that Snake Eyes film where they got an actor that didn't have that experience and it showed. And so the fact that they're doing like Crouching Iron Man, Hidden Tesseract in the Marvel (laughs) Universe, some Kung Fu, like I was into that. Like I saw these trailers and I'm like, okay, again, I don't know who any of these, well, I know who Aquafina and Michelle Yeoh are, but really didn't really know who this cast was, who this even character was, what his comic history was. But yeah, because it tapped into really that more early 70s Shaw Brothers operatic Kung Fu style of films. I was down for it because of that. I didn't know him, but the person I did know was Destin Daniel Cretton, who is getting the writing and directing job here. He is kind of responsible for giving the world Brie Larson. It's his fault? Yeah, you could look at it that way. (laughs) He got her breakout indie film, Short Term 12. That's why she shows up in this. Yeah, she was good in that movie. I'll just put it that way. Like, don't look at Captain Marvel if you want to like Brie Larson. Look at something like Short Term 12. You could also look at the film they made next together called The Glass Castle. I didn't really like it. It was one of those coming of age and being poor in Ireland movies. And then just recently, he did Just Mercy, which is kind of a John Grisham, but true story. Michael B. Jordan is a lawyer getting Jamie Foxx out of a prison sentence. That was unfair. And so what that signals to me is if you're going for someone like that, you're not worried about the action bona fides. The machine won't take care of the formula. You want a director that can get believability and dramatic acting 
out of these scenarios. Yeah, I didn't know what this director had done, but after Black Widow, I figured, oh, maybe some dramatic stuff because there's some dramatic scenes here. So they bring them in for those few dramatic scenes and they have some totally different directors doing all these big action things. That's what I figured. It feels like that's the new model, right? Because Black Widow, we talked about how that director had nothing on a resume and didn't even want to do it. It was like, I don't do those kinds of movies. But it seems like Marvel feels like we've got the framework always. We know how to make the big stuff. It's the little moments. It's the character moments that we need these directors to to make authentic. See, and I think it depends on the director. Because from the stuff I've read, Cretton did get involved with these action scenes. But I'm guessing it's a wonderful learning opportunity, I would think. I mean, everybody in their job has a chance where you can hand a task off to somebody who's been there longer, or you can work with that person and learn some of the stuff, right? And you're going to have them make sure you don't screw up. I think Cretton enjoyed getting to play in the big sandbox without having to worry that he was playing without a net. Yeah, who wouldn't want that cushion to know that there's all this money and all these experienced people to make sure you don't fail? Because I would be very nervous with his resume, knowing that I'm known for small, dramatic films, to suddenly be commanding what I'm guessing is a $200 million or more project. No, this is low-budget Marvel. It's only one fifty. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm so sorry that he had to count his pennies. But again, I think the tack Marvel is taking is interesting. That we don't need to think of this as, like, get the big action stars, get the big action director. You know, those people tend to not understand the, the drama. When you watch great action movies, it's usually the love stories that are corny, the father-son issues that are eye-rolling. We're going to try and get somebody that can fix those and just know that at this point, we have the reputation to deliver the action that people expect in these kinds of projects. I came in skeptical. I came in with low expectations. The trailers for this didn't do much for me. The name Shang-Chi didn't do much for me. I kept wondering why. And you say they're looking for serious dramatic chops. Did you see the trailers with Aquafina mugging for the camera? I was like, oof. You know, with Guardians, I said before they showed a frame of footage, Guardians could be Marvel's first big failure. And then I saw the trailer and I was pre-sold on Guardians. And I've thought Marvel played it safe ever since until now. And I was like... Even with the second trailer, I'm like, this could be Marvel's first big failure. The thing that excited me most in these trailers was seeing Abomination, a character who will have about 30 total seconds of screen time, was what made me most excited to go see this in theaters. And I did see it twice. It is completely filmed in IMAX cameras, talking about playing in that big sandbox again. The whole thing is filmed IMAX format. So I saw it once in IMAX. But then I did that AMC private theater rental with some friends of mine and saw it where I was able to actually take my notes on an iPad. It was glorious. And so I saw it a second time on Saturday afternoon. And this one, again, I like martial arts films. So the trailers, they look competent enough. So, okay, you're going to throw that in the Marvel Universe, whatever. Fine. I'm just down for a good martial arts film. And so, yeah, I was more excited than I thought it would be for (laughs) Shang-Chi. Like, again, not knowing who this character was. I'm like, oh, forget it being a Marvel film. It looks like a pretty okay martial arts fantasy film. So, yeah, I drove out to the drive-in like I've been doing lately. And it was pretty full there. Like, a lot more people there to, to sit in their cars and watch this than Candyman. Oh yeah, my IMAX premiere was packed with teenagers. I felt like the oldest person in the theater for the first time in my life. Hmm, 
Yeah, I did IMAX as well. I think people know at this point I don't get excited about superhero movies. They're on all the time, and I'm looking for the novelty. What about this is going to make it feel different from the hundreds of other ones that I've been subjected to? I think that if there was a hook, it was the fact that we were finally getting an Asian-American superhero, that women had had Captain Marvel, blacks had had Black Panther. Whites had had everyone else. Nobody had Black Widow. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, that's a disappointment (laughs) still. But again, let's see them break a glass ceiling here. If this is going to be unique, it's going to be because I'm going to really be blown away by a character and an actor I haven't ever seen before. And it's going to be awesome to see them become a star before your eyes. So let me ask, Jacob, from what you said, you would have seen this even if it didn't have any Marvel connections, if this was just a standalone movie? I mean, I probably wouldn't have driven out to the drive-in to see this because I wouldn't have had to. But yeah, I would eventually saw it at some point because it looked interesting enough. Again, as a martial arts film, I'm like, okay, I would have totally checked this out at some point. And Stuart, you went in with the burden of superhero connections, even though it looked like a martial arts film? It didn't really look like a martial arts film to me. I mean, I feel like I only saw one trailer, and it ran before every movie that I've seen in the last two months in theaters. And to me, it did kind of look like Aquafina. It looked like Rush Hour. It looked like, yeah, there'll be some kung fu, but mostly it's going to be a buddy cop kind of scenario with Aquafina in the Chris Tucker role. Yeah, I was hoping all of Aquafina's yuck-yuck jokes were in that trailer. I did not want to sit through two hours of that. I've never heard a better comparative than Aquafina to Chris Tucker in my life. It's like, <laughs> wow, you've aligned the worlds for me with that. Because yes, that. Yeah, and I just want to put it out there. I like her. She was the best part about Ocean's 8. I thought she was played just enough in Crazy Rich Asians, and she had a good dramatic turn. She, If you want to see her act and actually be good in a film... Watch Shang-Chi? Uh, no, I would say The Farewell first. The A24 drama was really a good use of her talent. But I know that she's mostly known for doing hip-hop comedy about vaginas. I, I know that that's her <laughs> reputation. I just don't really know much about that. I liked her in Ocean's 8 a lot, and I like her. Crazy Rich Asians a lot. That's like a movie that's on a lot in our house, and I think she's really good in it. But yes, she can be big. Yes, Chris Tucker. So no, I didn't think of it as a martial arts film. I didn't think it was going to be heavy on that. I thought it was Black Panther with Asians. But let's find out what it was. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? Looking at Sean, played by Simu Liu, you wouldn't think much of the San Franciscoan mid-20s parking valet especially with how much time he spends with slacker best friend Katie, played by Aquafina. In fact, though, Sean's real name is Shang-Chi, and he's the son of a thousand-year-old crime lord, Wen Wu, played by Tony Leung. Wen Wu possessed the magical Ten Rings, which in this movie are more like the Ten Bracelets. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> I can't wait to tell you what the Ten Rings were like in the comics. They're not cool here. That's all I got to say. If you want people to buy that and wear them. They're worse than the comics. They made them much cooler than what they could have been. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. I actually think these are pretty badass and we'll get into it. Okay. But these 10 rings give Wenwu super strength and eternal life. And with those, he founded the 10 rings terrorist group and became very powerful. But in the 1990s, like most of us, the crime lord was listless and just wanted more out of life. So he went looking for the mythical land called Talo, where they have a magical type of martial arts. He finds the place and discovered true love when he fought the land's protector, Ying Li. She leaves Talo to be with Wenwu, 
and Wen Wu gave up his rings and his immortal life. Together, they parented Shangxi and his little sister, Xu Shaling. When Shangxi was seven, some men came seeking revenge on Wen Wu, so they killed Ying Li. Heartbroken, Wen Wu again adorns the ten wristlets to get revenge on the men who made him a widower. He put Shangxi in training to become a master fighter and assassin. When Shangxi was 14, he was sent to kill the man responsible for his mother's death. He does, but then realizes he doesn't want to be a killer, so he ran away from his father to become an American millennial in San Francisco. That slacker life ends suddenly when some men lead an unprovoked attack on Shangxi. They're led by one-armed Razor Fist, who, you guessed it, has a sword on his amputated arm. The men want the pendant Shangxi was given by his mother. They get the pendant, though Shangxi wins the fight. Shangxi and Katie fly to Macau to warn Xu Shaling of their father's coming back. They find Xu Shaling runs an underground fight club, but Xu Shaling is mad at her brother for leaving her alone with Wen Wu all those years ago. But when Wen Wu's men attack the club, she and Shangxi team up. The fight ends when Wen Wu himself shows up with his ten rings and flies his two children, and Katie, back to his compound in China. He explains he's been hearing the voice of his dead wife. She's not gone, but trapped in her home dimension of Talo. He wants to go there and free her, but he needed his children's pendants to find a way back to that magical land. When his children don't agree with his actions, he puts them in a cell, where they meet Trevor Slattery, Ben Kingsley, reprising his role from Iron Man 3. Why? Trevor, a struggling thespian, had pretended to be the Ten Rings ruler the Mandarin back then to torment Iron Man. He had been arrested, but Wen Wu broke Trevor out of prison with the intent of killing the actor. Instead, Wen Wu was so amused by the actor's antics, Trevor was kept alive to give weekly performances. Trevor has a friend-slash-pet named Morris, a faceless creature that came from Talo. Morris knows the way to the magical land, and only Trevor understands the creature's language, so Xu Shaling, Shang-Chi, Katie, Trevor, and Morris escape their cell and go to Talo, arriving well before Wen Wu. There, they're greeted by their mother-sister Ying Nan, played by Michelle Yeoh. Ying Nan explains that thousands of years ago, Talo was attacked by a soul-sucking creature called the Dweller in Darkness. The people of Talo couldn't fight it off, and the Dweller was about to go through the portal and destroy Earth. That's when Talo's guardian dragon, the Great Protector, joined the fight. The Dweller was forced into a cave and imprisoned there. In the century since, many people have come to break out the Dweller, all called there by a deceased loved one. Now the Dweller is playing that trick on Wen Wu, knowing that Wen Wu's Ten Rings could free the Dweller. Sure enough, Wen Wu and his Ten Rings army arrive to open the seal, and the people of Talo are armed to resist. And the Talo people are joined by Shang-Chi, Katie, who's now become an archer, and Xu Shaoling, who's trained for combat her entire life in secret since women weren't allowed to train with the Ten Rings. In battle, Wen Wu and Shang-Chi face off. Shang-Chi using the magical martial arts of the Talo to stand strong against the power of the Ten Rings. When Shang-Chi suggests his mother wouldn't want anything to do with the man Wen Wu had become, the father uses the rings to seemingly kill the son. Shang-Chi's body falls into the water, where he awakens the Great Protector. The red and white dragon arouses Shang-Chi from his near-death state, and then brings him above the water, but not before Wen Wu broke the seal and released the Lovecraftian flying demon, the Dweller in Darkness. Wen Wu realizes his mistake 
and as his soul is eaten by the creature he released, Wenwu passes the Ten Rings down to Shangxi. The army of the Ten Rings join forces with the people of Talo to try to fight the demon, as well as his flying minions, but they're no match for the forces of darkness. The Dweller gets the Great Protector in his grasp and begins to suck out the dragon's soul. That's when Katie shoots an arrow, piercing the Dweller's neck. That allows the Great Protector to get free, and Shang-Chi is able to use the Ten Rings to forever kill the Dweller. That fight done, Shang-Chi and Katie return to their normal lives in San Francisco, briefly. The sorcerer Wong, played by Benedict Wong, arrives. When Shang-Chi used the Ten Rings, they sent out a message somewhere. Shang-Chi, Katie, and the sorcerer will need to team up to find out the origins of the Ten Rings after a round of karaoke. As Xu Shaoling told her brother she would dismantle their father's empire, but she's actually taken over as the leader of the Ten Rings, immediately enforcing women's equality on the training fields. As credits end. As they begin, I think Marvel is signaling in a lot of different ways that they are committed to giving us a Chinese superhero. We get some voiceover narration in Chinese. They're not going to speak in English for, it feels like, a good 10 minutes here. It is about 10 minutes, yeah. I, I was looking at the clock just because I'm like, wow, are they going to do this? Is this going to be a foreign film or less? Because there are a lot of subtitles. That's not a criticism, but yeah, I was surprised they're going to go, again, for something that a lot of children are going to, and, and kids don't like to read a lot of times when they're watching a movie. I know my kids don't. They don't like those subtitles, but yeah, a, a lot of Chinese is going to get spoken here. Oh well, yeah, this is a great kids movie for the Chinese kids, right? Who are yes. also learning English. I mean, <laughs> those Chinese kids learned English in kindergarten. They're way ahead of us. Yeah, this is not a film for American children. There's a lot of reading. A lot of this movie is in Chinese. And there's two vagina references. So I don't know that Marvel is really caring about the kindergarten set with Shang-Chi. Right. It really lets me know that, oh, okay, this is going to be a, a new direction for them. The other thing that strikes me here is we get a battlefield shot. I feel like I've seen this in a lot of movies like Hero, where there's a horde of Turks or something shooting arrows into the air, and one lone guy that's going to wipe them all away. I know this guy. I didn't know that Tony Leung was going to be in this cast, but he was kind of a big deal, I would say, 20 years ago. I don't know if you guys know the work of Wong Kar Wai, but he was a Chinese director that Quentin Tarantino had talked up in his heyday. And so at that time, I probably saw everything that Wong Kar Wai made. And Tony Leung was his leading man, his Chow Young Fat, if you will. But he wasn't known as a martial artist. No. He was like romantic. Like this guy is known for breaking hearts or looking like he's had his heart broken. Yeah. He did Chungking Express, right? He is, yeah, or yeah, youthful kind of movies, yeah. like coming of age, but in the mood for love. Uh, yeah, again, I, if you want sensitive Chinese drama, Tony Leung is your man. If you want a guy on a horse wiping away arrows, he looks really old here. That's all I'm going to say is like, he looks way too old to be doing this, but I guess the character is a thousand years old, so it's okay. Really? I had no problem with his look here. I don't know this actor. Looking him up... I'd long time ago seen Hard Boiled, that Chow Yun-Fat film. I think everybody saw that in the 90s. He's in that? I actually never saw that one, and I wouldn't have thought he was in it. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I don't remember him in it, though. That's not the draw for <laughs> Hard Boiled. But here, I think he looks fine with those energy whip weapons and things. It's not like they're asking him to do martial arts. He just has to pose and whip around with some whips. I mean, I think he looks perfectly fine, and I'm kind of impressed 
This is a new power set. We've never seen anything like the Ten Rings. I've never seen anything like it in any movie I've seen before. You mean the bracelets that shoot things out of your fist? I mean, this is these Ten Rings are very different from the comic, because in the comic, they're literally rings that you put on your Ten Fingers. And aren't they like the Infinity Stones? Like, one is wisdom, and one is... Yes, they each have a different power, like you could disintegrate with one, and yeah, they each have a different power. It's alien technology, and we'll get to a post-credit sequence, but they came from an alien spaceship that landed in ancient China, and yeah, ended up with this character having them, and the Mandarin in the comic, we'll talk about the Mandarin again here, but yeah, having these ten rings that gave him power. Yeah, because they're merging the Mandarin, who's an Iron Man villain, a real Iron Man villain called the Mandarin, with Fu Manchu, Shang-Chi's dad, right, in this? Yeah, they're trying to honor those origins from the Shang-Chi comics and, yes, work it into this Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, yeah, the Mandarin was always associated with Iron Man. So I'm hearing, Arnie, you're having no problem, yet again, with jewelry being the magical... Like, that was always the thing, even with Thanos. Like, they ended up making it work by giving him that gauntlet. But the idea that jewelry can zap you, that Green Lantern shit, like, that doesn't fly for me. Is it any different if you call it a wristlet? Like, Iron Man had wrist armor that would shoot weapons. It's very different than Iron Man, yes. It feels very different than robotic technology you put on. I'm thinking about Madonna circa desperately seeking Susan and all her O-rings when he's running around with these things. I've never thought about Desperately Seeking Susan during any other movie that didn't star Rosanna Arquette, but here I'm liking what this does. I mean, it's like an energy whip slash pummeling weapon slash the way he can use it to do these flying leaps by shooting off the ground, and he has to use it to reduce the impact of his fall. I'm actually like grooving to this power set that I didn't think I'd like at all coming in. You know, in the trailer, you got to see people, like, playing tug-of-war with rings, and I'm like, oh boy. But here, instantly, I'm sold that this guy is a super-powered badass. Yeah, I will say I like this power set in the beginning when they're doing lightsaber battles at the end. I've lost interest in him, but at the beginning here, I like what he's doing with the rings. I guess I was hoping that the fights would feel more like the wire-foo of Crouching Tiger. I was hoping for that too, Stuart. (laughs) Yeah, and to see that it's going to be about zapping people with your bracelets. I'm on my heels. I'm falling backwards. I mean, I got that from the trailer, though, so I'm expecting that. So I'm like, whatever martial arts you can give me, I'm going to appreciate in this film. Because, yes, I am ready for a lot of special effects with rings flying around and that, because I did see all the trailers for this. And I think I'm in a kung fu film. I think when Shang-Chi shows up, there's going to be enough kung fu fighting So to have something different here at the beginning, I mean, this is a prologue telling the origin of Wenwu and the Ten Rings, and it's, we're not talking very long of the scene with the Hordes. I mean, the fact that they'd spend so much, and I don't know how much of this is CGI and how much of this is actual extras on horses, I'm tending to believe a lot of CGI. All of it CGI? Yeah. (laughs) But we're talking literally two minutes of a prologue here. And Stuart, you're on your heels because of two minutes. We aren't even in the movie yet. 
Yeah, we got a lot of time to talk about what else they don't like. But I'm just saying, as a beginning, what I thought that I was lining up to see, here's how little I had paid attention to this movie. I didn't realize the Ten Rings were bracelets. I didn't realize it was going to be about magic jewelry. It's in the title, Stuart. I didn't know what those were, and I just didn't think about it, and I probably should have known, but I'm just saying, seeing Tony Leung looking very old and zapping people with bracelets is kind of deflating. If you didn't think the Ten Rings were jewelry, were you thinking about the guys who kidnapped Iron Man in 2008? Because that was the Ten Rings organization. The whole plan from Favreau was to lead to the Mandarin and Iron Man 3, which when Favreau dropped out and Shane Black came in, kind of took a soft left turn there. But were you expecting to find out more about the terrorist organization then? Because again, the movie is called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I don't think you're getting how checked out I am. I walk into the IMAX. I'm here to see a movie called Shang-Chi. That's it. I'm not thinking about Ten Rings. I didn't even pay attention to the full title. I stopped reading after the first two words of the title. I didn't know this was coming. I didn't know this character. And I just figured the movie would explain it to me. And I didn't need to worry about it. No, I definitely wasn't thinking about any other reference for rings. To your point, though, Arnie, because, yeah, that was something on my mind, and I, they'll actually address it. That shocked me, because I was thinking, wasn't the Ten Rings, that was that terrorist group that got Iron Man in that very first film so many years ago, and, yeah, they did that whole thing with Ben Kingsley as a fake Mandarin, but I'm like, oh, are they going to address that terrorist organization? Is Was that part of this? Like, did Wenwu have some part in creating Iron Man? I'm legitimately upset that with all the exposition that goes on around the Ten Rings, they never tell me why he wanted a Jericho missing. <laughs> At any rate, you're right. This is a brief introduction to just set up what looks like a villain. I think if you're watching this, you would think, oh, this is the bad guy, because this is obviously not Shang-Chi, and he's conquering all these worlds. For a thousand years, we're expected to believe that he has taken over everything. Like, wherever there's conflict, he's at the head of that. Oh yeah, I mean, the Ten Rings is set up in those previous movies. It's a terrorist organization. They've shied away from it being a Middle Eastern terrorist organization to a multinational terrorist organization. But this is Spectre. This is Smirsh. Okay, wow, I didn't... Again, I guess my attitude is, you're not a terrorist organization if you actually succeed in taking over. He should be ruler of the world <laughs> by the end of these thousand years. But for some reason, he is Alexander the Great with no worlds left to conquer in 1996 and suddenly gets excited that he's found this mythical place that he hasn't put under his control. I like that he's a smart villain. He spends a lot of time reading and researching, you know? You don't really see that with villains. He's always got these ancient texts. If you notice, he's reading a book here at the beginning and it's got drawings of Morris in it. So that when Morris shows up later, you're like, oh yeah, it's the animal from the book. You saw this twice. I'm just going to point out <laughs> these things. You're like, oh, look at all these things. No, I didn't see that. And what I saw was an underling bring him a map and say, should we investigate? And he's saying, we're going now. That's what I see. He's not a reader. He's an active character. He's a doer. He wants to, oh, there's something, someplace I haven't been. Let me go conquer it. And of course, the twist is he's the one that gets conquered. He falls in love. Yeah, no, I think this is a cool little scene as they're driving into this forest to find this magical city, like the trees start closing in on them. This feels like Ents from Lord of the Rings, not something I'd associate with Marvel, all this fantasy stuff. Yeah, the bamboos moving was cool. And the way that they suddenly were, it's like a water or something like that. It feels like a tidal wave that suddenly comes into both the road ahead and behind. 
What I really like, though, is when he does, you know, walk through the trees a little bit, which does seem to be the solution to the I can't drive through the trees problem. I don't know if it's farther than any human could ever walk, but he walks through, he gets to the portal to Talo. He's not actually in Talo, but then there is the Guardian, and we've seen, you know, again, we're three minutes, four minutes into the movie, we've seen how powerful these ten rings are, but now Ying Li is there, and she's like, is that all? Okay, so this is Tony Leung's bag. Like, falling in love with a woman, being irresistible, usually something he can pull off here. These plastic smiles and this, like, ice capades dance that they do as they're meeting cute. Why is she falling for him? Oh, you just don't understand martial arts. I feel like I've seen this a hundred times in martial arts films. This is how you fall in love. Like, you fight each other, you get to learn each other's style. It's an unspoken language. Does it make 100% sense? No, but again, I go with it because I've seen this before. I know, oh, this this is the trope. You fight each other and fall in love during that. Again, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that's what that entire movie's about. No, I get that, and I, I agree. Crouching Tiger is a drama that uses the fights to explain inner feelings, I get why he finds this woman irresistible. It's a place he hasn't conquered. Why is she going for this guy? The rings? She just really likes bracelets? <laughs> Again, though, I agree with Jacob. It's in kung fu films, you use the kung fu as a way of forming attraction. The same way in an American film, you might see a dance scene where two characters don't know each other, but after seeing each other dance, they immediately know this is the one for me. I go with this. I love this fight scene. I love that it slows down her little like three-quarter circle foot movement that's going to be repeated throughout the film. And the way they look at each other, I'm going to put it out there. I've only seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon once. I hated it. I really did not like the ballet fighting kung fu bullshit. I wanted some Jackie Chan fighting and I got some tree dances. But here... This works for me. Yeah, this is much more in the tradition of Chinese opera, which, again, translated to, like, the Shaw Brothers did a ton of stuff based off of Chinese opera. But I look at this dance. I call it a dance. It's really a fight. But no, I look at their styles, and one is very graceful. One's very, you know, brute force. It's the yin and yang type of thing going on. I, again, to me, you're right, Stuart. Why? I don't know, but it works in that martial arts tradition in that Chinese opera tradition. I've seen Tony Leung fall in love with women a lot, and usually it's beautiful to behold. And here, it feels stilted and awkward, and I'm not getting the chemistry at all. I think that their looks to each other are sweet. I know what I'm seeing here. I'm a little shocked that, you know, they're going to go off and make babies together, but I actually really like her little whirlwind fighting. This magical realism fighting is something that is enchanting me just a couple minutes into the film, even though this is the type of film I would normally think I would actively dislike. Yeah, I don't like the scene, and I, I'm left with the mystery of why she gives up her Forbidden Realm. She's the guardian of this world, and we'll jump cut. It'll be a while before the movie will explain. She chooses a life as a mortal, raising children, as opposed to continuing at her post. And I will say right away, this movie broke me in one regard. I'm tired of the constant flashback movies. This trope of we're going to follow an adult, but at key moments, we're going to suddenly flash back to their childhood and see important things that we never knew about before. Stop it. Just stop it. It's overused right now. 
Unless you have a very specific reason for doing it, please stop the intertwined I'm a child, I'm an adult narratives. I'll say I agree with you with this film. Like, it's a thing. It, it depends how it's used here. I feel like whenever they flash back, it's going to slow down the momentum of the film. And that's not what should be happening with flashbacks. They should be adding to the story, building it. This, every time they're going to flash back, ugh, it just slows things down. And it, and it feels like we get exposition scenes like six or seven times throughout this film because they got to keep doing these flashbacks and explaining things. What kills me is sometimes we'll have a flashback scene and then an exposition scene to tell us what was in the flashback scene. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of exposition in this. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to introduce Shang or Sean. Like, because this is not about Wen Wu, we have to find a way to get there. And so we get the idea that this couple had a baby and that Shang has been given some magic necklace and we think that he's destined for, and if you're the son of the guy that conquered the world, he's probably got his life course set to be something pretty great. It's a real shocker when we see he's not the cool guy getting out of the BMW. He's the valet telling Aquafina, don't wreck it. It's this scene where I'm like, oh, this is not what I want when we, not that I don't need our hero to start off as a valet, that's fine, but Aquafina, all these jokes, I'm going to yell Hotel California at people. Now we're doing a slacker comedy? You can dog on Aquafina if you want. My problem is not her. My problem is Simu Liu. Really? He's terrible. Okay, uh, why? No presence. Like, where is your hero? Why should I like this guy? Like a kind of sniveling, like semi-sarcastic background character? This is supposed to be your movie. Go do something. And he will, but right now he is a slacker. He and Aquafina are a couple millennial valets who take cars on joyrides. I will not say for certain that I have ever been in that position and done the same thing. I won't say I haven't. But right away, I'm like, I understand where these people are when a nice car pulls up and they decide they want to drive it really fast someplace other than the valet parking lot. No, he doesn't want to do it. She wants to do it. She's the fun, active character that wants to party. I don't know what he wants to do, particularly when you put it in retrospect that he's a trained assassin that has the power to control the world. Well, that is the weird thing, because we're going to find out he has done an assassination. And I read like the first year's worth of the original run of Shang-Chi, and I kind of got into it. And like it starts off, he's at 19. His father sends him out to go do an assassination. He totally trusts his father, believes he's doing the right thing does that assassination and then finds out his dad's bad and has to turn against him like that. That's that sweet, sweet Marvel thing where, you you know, your whole world crumbles around you and you realize not everything is what it seems. And then, he, you know, it's him going and trying to fight against his dad. A lot of unfortunate coloring of his skin. It, they use a lot of yellow shades in that and a lot of calling him yellow and slant eyes like there's stuffs from the 70s that stuck in there. But I found that much more compelling, know that this was a tragic character that whose whole world shattered around him and he's trying to put it back together than cut to Sean being a valet. And yeah, I don't know what his story is yet. He, he had this great dad, this great mom, and now he's a slacker 20-something. I think this is intended to make you like him and make him relatable and not somebody quote-unquote above you while at the same time asking the question, why is he doing this? I just feel like I don't ever get that he has this dark past. No, Simu Lu has got no darkness. Yeah, I feel like Aquafina is going to act real surprised when he finds out all this stuff later. And I don't blame her because he doesn't seem burdened by it at all. He doesn't seem like he's even there. It's Aquafina having fun and him watching her do that. 
he's along for the fun. He gets in the car. He's just the slightly more law-abiding one is all I'm taking this as. And, I mean, again, we're really drilling into a couple minutes of film. I think that he's shown as more fun that evening when they're out to dinner telling the tale of the joyride to their high school friend and her husband. I mean, you say a couple minutes of film, but this is the beginning. This is what's setting that character up. So I feel like they could have done a better job. Again, making it more apparent that there's something that's burdening him, that he has this dark past, that he has killed someone before, and that he's trying to cover that up by maybe being a slacker. Maybe that's his reason for working as a valet and doing midnight karaoke and all that. I feel like, yeah, your first couple minutes are super important in establishing this character. Now, I did have a suspicion that never came true, though. I never trusted Aquafina. I felt for sure, knowing where this guy came from, Aquafina was a spy. She's going to be talking to these friends. I don't know how these friends don't know these stories already, because one of them went to high school with them. The husband doesn't. Only Sue has been to college with them. They're explaining to Sue's new husband. Who they've never met? I mean, if they're, they've known Sue from the day. Yeah, no, that's, yes, please. Yes, they haven't met him. That's the point. She's getting married. She's moving up in the world. There's still valets. That's why she's so judgy. It's like, look, I'm moving on with my life. Why are you guys still talking about college? But what's going to be found out is that some bully was coming after Sean, calling him Gangnam Style. Very dated reference there. Was that 10 years ago? Doesn't it hurt? It's only 10 years ago? It feels like a lifetime ago. (laughs) Oh, okay. But she got in between the bully and Sean and has been with him ever since. Coming into the movie, actually, in the trailers, was this person in a blue robe and kabuki makeup. And I thought that was going to be Aquafina. And then I wondered if Aquafina was just a spy working for his dad, keeping tabs on him the whole time. Nah, she's just a good friend. Right. There is a line drop. So this is... After Iron Man snap, that brought everyone back, right? They do make a reference, Sue does, about how half the population could just disappear at any time. That's the days they're living in. Yeah, and when he goes to Katie's apartment, it says, post-blip anxiety, we can help. There's like some signs up for therapy groups. I picked up on that, and so I thought maybe that's the reason why they're seemingly 30 years old and still living like 20-year-olds. But does the blip really matter? I feel like that ends up being a non-issue. It matters when it needs to matter in Marvel, I think. (laughs) No, I just mean here for the drama. It's not what's influenced Shang or Katie. I mean, I don't think Katie, you know, she's got all of this backstory. We'll meet her family. They're very judgy about how unaccomplished she is. She obviously has guilt about that, but I don't feel like the blip, I can't can't get the story. If if it's the blip, I don't know why. It feels like the blip is mentioned just to tell us what point we're in in the MCU. I mean, if you're going off of, if this was all coming out when it was supposed to, our last film was a flashback film, so you might be confused. When does Shang-Chi take place after we saw Black Widow? I'm not quite sure when it takes place, but it takes place after Endgame at some point in time. Katie's big backstory, the thing that we get very loudly is, one day she's going to make her family proud, but she's just not there yet, emotionally. And I like Aquafina in these scenes with the family. You know, just the sarcastic put upon and there's just a couple of like angles here where mom's like she's not writing and she's walking across the hallway in the background i'm just having fun with this family scene it makes me sad we don't see this family again you should watch the farewell then it's a lot of this with aquafina but do you like shang chi in these scenes again this is a movie to set him up 
And I'm feeling Aquafina is stealing his spotlight. I like him. I like the way he interacts with the grandma. You know, these are save the cat moments, right? He's so nice to the grandma and talking about the grandfather who's passed away, coming back for whiskey and Funyuns. And we're setting him up as the quote unquote good guy. And to be honest, I'm surprised how fast this movie's moving because we spent about 10 minutes in the past with Wen Wu. And then we've spent about seven minutes in the present with Katie and Sean. And then Katie says, we got to get going. We're going to miss our bus. And I'm like, oh, shit, I know this scene from the trailer. We're already at this big bus fight 17 minutes into the film. I mean, that's what you want, isn't it? Like, this is a Marvel film. Let's get to the action. Yeah, it's what I wanted, but I was shocked at the efficiency. At the efficiency at the expense of Shang-Chi. Again, I haven't heard you say in any of these moments, I hear you judging me for saying, why don't you like this guy? I didn't hear you say that he's done anything to, like, command the screen. Well, he's about to because the fight moves he's going to pull off on this bus, damn impressive. This is when he steps up. Understand, we've had six minutes with this character where he's supposed to be the background slacker who has even less ambition than Aquafina. He's happy to be Aquafina's follower in these scenes. And when some thugs come up to him and try to steal his necklace on a bus, you're supposed to think that he's just going to take it. But of course, we know we have the dramatic irony coming in. This is Shang-Chi. He's a badass. And here he's going to make his first big impression and does so in a great way for me. And I know you don't want flashbacks. I don't want any more flashbacks in this, but I know you want a little action scene to pull the audience in at the beginning and maybe all this drama with Aquafina's family wouldn't be a a big draw, but wouldn't this be a bigger surprise if we didn't get that first 10 minutes of exposition? Like, have that come in later that we really did think this was just some slacker? Because I'm not surprised when he starts pulling off these moves. We just saw his whole backstory. I don't think we'd be surprised anyway. We saw the trailer. Yeah, but if you're looking at it as a film, like, I think this would catch people more off guard if all of a sudden this slacker is pulling these great kung fu moves. I got a little confused by this. I'll be honest. To me, it was playing a little bit like Chuck. Like, it was playing (laughs) like even Sean didn't know he was a martial artist. It was the magic green jade necklace that was suddenly giving him the ability. Like, again, I'm looking at this as a jewelry movie, and I'm like, oh, boy. Like, you just put on things, and suddenly you got fighting abilities. No, no, no. I, when he woke up and we saw his morning montage, his ripped body and his push-ups routine let me know this was a guy who was still working out and staying in shape and training. I saw a Kung Fu Hustle poster on his wall. He's into the martial arts. But I agree, Arnie. This is a great fight scene, great martial arts scene. There's long takes. It's not quick cuts, which really drives me crazy because that means no one has any talent when it comes to fighting. Here are people that actually know what they're doing. Oh, I love the shot outside the bus where, like, the camera is going the pace of the bus, except Sean is walking backwards through the bus And so the camera's following him. I do appreciate this old boy style hallway fight scene. And he's doing double dragon like flying kicks. And you know what it's reminding me of is kind of like Jackie Chan because he's using his coat as a weapon. He does that jacket move. That is a total Jackie Chan move. I thought that too. I love Jackie Chan movies. Love, love, love Jackie Chan martial arts. Go listen to our Rush Hour retrospective to hear me gush about how much I love Jackie Chan. And I'm getting that vibe here and really enjoying it too. You're really feeling like you're watching Jackie Chan on screen. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, you're explaining to me why you're so passionate about defending this guy. 
I, it's probably no surprise for you guys to realize that I'm watching the scene shrugging. Do you like Jackie Chan? Do you like martial arts films where it's like that? Jackie Chan, to me, you're saying that that is Charlie Chaplin, that he is going to do these hilarious stunts where, like, he's really there, almost falling off a building, but playing it like slapstick. I don't feel, this feels like an amusement park ride. It feels like there's a bus that's been built to tilt a lot, and there's blue screen work, and we have somebody that's competently jumping in and out of the windows. I don't doubt that any of that was the case, Stuart, but these people actually know what they're doing as far as the fighting moves go. Again, this is not stuff I've seen in another Marvel film before. At this point, however many films in we're into with this franchise, like anything new, I'm going to appreciate. I I did catch some moments of blue screen. When Sean is on top of the bus, Yeah, the blue screen was obvious, but A... I'm not going to damn a good film for having a few bad special effect shots. If so, we would have all three red arrowed Black Panther. And B, it's a very quick shot. It's a shot that lets us know how he gets to the front of the bus. And the next thing I know, he's back in the bus and I'm not noticing the blue screen. Maybe it's because I'm so focused on good martial arts fights. Now, let me agree with you in one thing. If you want me to be negative... There's not enough of this in the film. I wanted the whole film to be this bus fight. This is the best scene, yeah. There's still another good one, but this is the best scene in the movie. And I am disappointed that it does go more Ten Rings magic blasting and not enough of this. Because I came in to see Shang-Chi, who was from the Master of Kung Fu comic books. I wanted a Kung Fu movie, and this is like the only time I get it. And I think we the only other real Shang-Chi character from the comics that comes in again the, the dad they've changed it a little bit but razor fist like this guy who has half of an arm and like a blade comes out of it now in the comic he i guess he was razor fists because both of his arms were like that but this is really the only other character like besides his dad dr fu manchu like he didn't really have a consistent at least in that early stuff didn't have a consistent villain but razor fist was there i recognized him i want a team-up movie with razor fist and taser face please <laughs> so you guys are liking this razor fist dude you know i don't like him here he just seems like a generic james bond villain yes thank you but later on in the movie he wins me over the more he's in this movie and has character the more i actually really like him oh that see it's the opposite for me like when we find out his car and i don't know all that stuff doesn't work just him as a nameless dude with kind of a cool arm with a sword attached to it like that's fun like just show me him fighting someone i don't need his backstory when you say Kung Fu Hustle, I think about hordes and hordes of ridiculous fighters and their powers, and watching them go out at it is a total delight. There's comedy in that. You guys agree that this scene is not really funny, right? Like, they're not going for that. Yeah, they're referencing Jackie Chan. They might be referencing Kung Fu Hustle, but I don't feel like this is a Kung Fu comedy like Kung Fu Hustle is or a lot of Jackie Chan stuff is. I agree with that. Okay. I just want to clarify that because it's not like this movie, fun may not be the word. It might be a very good martial arts fight. That's not the thing that I'm best at assessing, but I don't feel when I think about the scenes that I've loved in the past, it has any of the amusement of either the performer or those stunts. My IMAX audience, they were making aw sounds at some of these moves. And I found myself, I like had to step outside myself and be like, you're smiling. You have a big smile under that mask, Arnie. I did not expect to be sitting there for most of the first hour of this film with a giant grin plastered on my face the way I did. It's the fighting, for the fighting has won you over. 
this fighting really won me over, but it can the vibe of it continues. I'm you know what I love during this fight, and it is making me laugh out loud. Is the YouTuber streaming it? <laughs> yes, Cliff the YouTuber, who's like, I actually did a little martial arts as a youth, so I'm gonna grade this fight. It's like, yes, all these fake YouTubers. <laughs> He's doing his reaction video. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's us, right? He's the podcasters that always got to have something to say about the big Marvel production. I'm laughing out loud at Cliff being the funny, but I do think Simu Lu is commanding the screen doing these fights, doing these the punches, the posing. And yeah, you could go, oh, posing. Marvel made fun of posers with Black Widow. Yes, but Kung Fu movies are a lot about the posing. Take a look at Bruce Lee and tell me he doesn't pose. So no, I think he's commanding the screen and winning this fight and when he's like having to drive the bus and fight the guy that is a jackie chan moment to me but he doesn't win the fight i think the confusion is in the end the bad guy gets exactly what he came for he takes the stupid little necklace so it seemed to me like this guy wasn't very good my takeaway after all of this bus driving through ghirardelli square and crashing to a garbage truck is they failed do we even know when they took the necklace? Like, I maybe I missed it, but I never even saw that moment. It was just like, oh, my necklace is gone now. It is before he jumps through the bus, of course, but I did not on two viewings catch it. I meant to pay attention on the second viewing to find that exact moment where they grab the necklace or the exact moment when the necklace is no longer on him. I just got into the scene too much and didn't notice it again. But even Aquafina isn't bothering me as much as I thought she would because in that trailer... There's that scene of her looking over to somebody off screen and going, we make a good team. And I'm like, oh my God, she's going to be the most annoying sidekick ever. But I like that it's actually the freaking garbage truck driver who saves everybody's life. He's the one getting the bus to come to a stop. But Stuart, I, I am feeling what you're saying at this point. Like they've taken his necklace. Now they got to go get another necklace from Shang-Chi's sister. I'm like, oh, we're doing this thing again? We're, we're collecting jewelry? Like at this point now, I'm growing concerned that it's about these necklaces. Yeah, I don't really understand the plot mechanics that get them to Macau. We haven't been told about these necklaces, right? Yeah. No, we saw the in the early scenes before it, it wasn't a flashback. We saw them, but we don't know what they do. If you ever get lost, this will find your way home. Guess what? I knew at that moment this will take you to Talo. I mean, shit, it doesn't need to be spelled out for you, does it? I knew that this was going to be some kind of map. I didn't know how it would work, but we didn't even know there was a sister either. That's a shock for this moment, because in the whole backstory, we got to see the mom with Sean Shi, but we never saw a baby sister. Yes, this is the point where they're switching gears and we're learning that Sean is Shang. And that, oh yeah, Aquafina's character has been completely oblivious, known this man for 10 years, and never knew any of this stuff. She's giving Americans basically permission to kind of laugh at some of the Chinese name of it all. And, and again, letting us feel like we can say that some of this mumbo jumbo is a little ridiculous. Yeah, at this point, I Katie, I guess is Aquafina's name. We keep calling her Aquafina because that's like she doesn't do any role. She just plays herself. But yeah, she, the fact that she's Sean Chong, like I don't even know what generation she is as far as a immigrant to America. Like she feels very American. I think she's third based on the parents. Like the grandmother didn't speak English. The parents spoke accented English. 
So I think she's like second generation full American. She feels pretty assimilated, though, at this point. Yeah, very. Oh, yeah. The fact that she even has a different name, a Chinese name, is going to be a shock to me later on. But she helps the non-Asian American audience or any audience really like, uh, you're going to explain your world to me. We need this exposition and you're going to be the one to do it. And yeah, we get another flashback scene. This is where we learn that Wu from age seven turned Sean into a killer. I mean, something is said from sunup to sundown, he learned every way you could kill a man, which presumably includes boredom. And I have to say he's learned his craft well. <laughs> Oh, man, that's a low blow. I'm having, how can you be bored about a movie that at this point has been moving so well? Because you love kung fu movies, and I don't. And that one scene that blew you away and made you so happy didn't register at all. I'm looking at the rest of the movie, and I'm not liking it. What's frustrating for me here is I'm getting into this backstory. Okay, he was given his first assassination mission at 14. Like, this is some dark stuff he's revealing to Katie. Like, this should feel dramatic and serious. Be for vegetarian meal. Like, let's cut it with a joke. That is one of my biggest frustrations. Let the dramatic moments be dramatic. I know this is a Marvel film. You could have comedy moments. But don't be afraid to be serious at times. Like, you made people cry with Endgame and Infinity War. Like, you could do that. Like, you don't have to cut everything with a joke. My audience loved that joke, though. I mean... I, I'm sure they did. It ruins the dramatic moment. It ruins the darkness that Shang-Chi is supposed to have about him at this point. I think that there's real nervousness here about child killers, with good reason. We're finally finding out that this dad basically took a seven-year-old boy and trained him to kill, so that by 14, he went off to assassinate his first person. And what we learn here, it's a lie but that Shang-Chi says he didn't go through with it. And I believe that he didn't because it's a Marvel movie, right? I mean, you don't think you're going to have him be a killer. Or because they never show it. Well, again, it's like Stuart said. I think there's some fear of that. Well, are you making this for kindergartners or are you having 10 minutes of just Chinese and you're expecting a more mature audience? Teenagers could take a 14-year-old, a killer that was trained by his dad who was evil, like, and then he turns good. We've all seen Star Wars. We know how this works. It's not that mature. Could the MPAA take it, though? I honestly don't know. Yes, they could. Follow the through line here. So he runs away at 14. How does he become a valet? Like, none of that makes any sense to me. There's nothing that explains why he wound up in San Francisco, like parking cars with Aquafina. Here's what I take. I take it that being a 14-year-old, well-trained assassin, he knows stealth, he knows tactics, and he went to San Francisco. That is where he ran away from his father to San Francisco. I'm okay with that. A decade has passed and he's been hanging out with Aquafina. sorry, Katie, and I feel like whatever Katie has done, he's more than happy to go along with. Katie's a valet, all right, I'll be a valet to be with Katie. And here's what I find interesting between them is it's brought up by the grandmother is like, why aren't you two in love? And he's like, we're just friends. But you could tell at the end of this movie, are they still just friends? I don't know where their relationship status is, but he's following her around like a lovelorn puppy, 
even though I don't know why they wouldn't be dating. You know, there's some inference that I think maybe they just want to explore in later films, or maybe it was subtext. I was going to ask you guys at the end of the film whether or not they had progressed their relationship beyond friendship there. No, you talk about subtext. I thought, uh, look, this is too progressive, I think, for a Disney Marvel film. But yeah, well, one of them was going to come out as gay. That's why they were just friends. Like, that's where I thought this could have gone with all this friendship talk. I thought so, too, actually. I really did. Oh, yeah. I was totally getting a gay vibe off of him, actually. But then I remembered them saying the first openly gay Marvel character would be an Eternal. So, but I'm like, yeah, we still got Captain Marvel there, too. So, well, he's not open about it. You know, yeah, San Francisco is code for two things. Yes, it has a big Asian American population, also known for gay subculture. So uh, maybe that's why he went there. Again, who knows? Because who knows who this character is? Yeah, that's what we should be finding out throughout an origin story, right? Yeah. You're complaining about Aquafina, but I'm like, at least I'm watching her. Like, she's holding the screen. She's doing her job, and he's not. Or maybe his job is simply to do the martial arts, and I'm not receptive to that. I don't know. If he is supposed to come on the screen and own it like Hemsworth did, like Robert Downey Jr. did, like even Benedict Cumberbatch did, I don't feel like he pulled that off. I don't know if it's the actor or the writing. I do feel like... He's undercut because so much of this character story is told where he's not the actor in it. There's so much of this movie where what we're supposed to care about the character is flashbacks that star a 14-year-old or a 7-year-old or an infant. Or cameos, I think, because we're, what we're coming up on is he has a postcard, right, from supposedly his sister. They're going to go to this address. It's going to be a fight club, and this is your favorite part, right, Arnie? Like, this is what the trailer sold you on. We're going to see a Doctor Strange character and a Hulk character. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't here for <laughs> Aquafina or Simu Liu. I was here for Wong and Abomination, and yet my favorite character in the scene is John John. I love this club. This club is fun. I could just spend an entire Marvel series in this underground fight club instead of Madripoor. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that I do like in comic books. Again, it's, it's never like the main characters, the main set pieces, the big crossovers. It is always like... The weird, almost very real life stuff. Like if you had kind of superpowered people, like you would have these weird underground fight clubs, like where they'd fight. Like that to me is fun. Like I don't think they do a whole lot with this, but it is a fun little set piece. I will say, Arnie, you had told us that Abomination was in this movie. I didn't even in watching this scene make the connection to the Ed Norton movie. They changed his look, didn't they? Yeah, he's much more comic looking these days than he was in that Incredible Hulk movie. It took me most of the movie to realize that this was an MCU callback to the forgotten, let's just call it the (laughs) forgotten Hulk movie. The denied. Even Marjorie tells me that's not ending the MCU. It's a universal picture. I'm like, Marjorie, stop. Yeah, but you have love for Abomination. This means something to you that he's back? Yes, I have love for the Incredible Hulk movie. And having Emil here, as he's going to be called. Plus, it's, oh my god, so funny, because he's the bad guy, right? He was the maniacal bad guy from Incredible Hulk. And here he is fighting Wong, and Wong, how is he going to fight this giant monster? He's going to use the portal so Abomination punches himself. Love it. But then you find out they're friends. But it's all a setup, though. They're conning everyone. That no! Abomination wasn't pulling his punches enough, so Wong had to give him a taste of his own medicine. No, I don't think that that's it. I think that they're... I mean, Wong calls him out as, like, 
hitting him too hard, so that's why you had to do that. No, your punches were too wild. Oh, okay. I, I, it felt to me like they had set everyone up and they're doing a con here. No, no. I think that they're really in there, but it's f- like sparring instead of fights to the death. And we're going to see that next. It's set up here. We're going to see that next when Sean Chi has to fight his sister. It's not a fight to the death. It's... It, a earning of respect. And so that Wong was training Abomination how to fight better and yet kicking his ass in the ring. Plus this excites me because I hear Abomination's coming back for the She-Hulk TV series. So you like it as a trailer for maybe a TV series? Yes, I do. And Wong, you know what? I am i don't know if I mentioned this on the show. If I did, I apologize for repeating myself. I've met Benedict Wong at a con, talked with him for like 15 minutes. This guy can work a crowd. This guy can tell a story. He is an amazing entertainer in person. And from the tuna melt in Endgame to this, he is a joy on screen. Give me more Wong any day. Yeah, go ahead. Make your jokes. I said Wong, not Wang. (laughs) No, no, I I could see why you enjoy this so much, because I don't even remember a tuna melt. No, I I don't remember Wong. (laughs) I I don't know what that means, but I'm glad you're happy. (laughs) This scene meant absolutely nothing to me. So I guess what I'm saying is the reason why you're so jazzed is like invisible to me. I cannot see the movie that you're enjoying. I'm seeing, yeah, a club where we're going to be meeting the sister, maybe. I'm not exactly sure why they think she's here in this half-constructed skyscraper. Because they got a supposed postcard from her with that address. But she didn't send the card. Who sent the card? No, I don't know. I don't understand it. (laughs) Who sent the card? The dad did. The dad wanted them to come together? The dad. This was the easiest way to get a family reunion? He couldn't have taken the necklaces from them when they were seven years old? I don't understand any of this. He wasn't bitter yet. He hadn't heard the voice of the mother yet. And he didn't know he'd want to go back to Talo ever. Yes, he did. His wife was dead. But he didn't know he could bring her back because the voices didn't talk to him as soon as she died. All right. This man is going to do all of this complicated, what was that bus attack for? What was this attack for? Why couldn't he just say, your father is here and I want you to come home? Like, I don't get it. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, Stuart. I understand the plot. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, if he just wants necklaces, why does he want his son to come over and have to fight the son and the daughter? Like, just get it from the daughter. You have the son's necklace. He's already been to Talo. Why does he even need the map? Like, I don't understand any of it emotionally, I don't understand where these characters are and why it's taken them this long and why he gave the kids 10 years to do their own thing before he's like, now we got to go back. But you're telling me all of a sudden, for reasons, voices have possessed him. The voice just started talking to him, yeah. And and why that is, well, don't ask. And again, yes, <laughs> you are correct on that point. There are things that I do wonder. Like, yes, how does the evil Cthulhu demon pick who it talks to to bring to Talo? How does it know about the Ten Rings? Any of this, maybe it'll be explained because we're told that the Ten Rings send messages somewhere when being used, but... Like, I find it weird that you can't see to me that these are huge problems. Yes, you're loving the martial arts. I'll give you the martial arts movie. But this other movie is not good. The fantasy film is garbage. What's weird to me, and usually these, the MCU does a really good job at taking some background character, a Patroc the Leaper, and making them a credible villain or something. I feel like they have so little from the source comics 
to take because all this, yeah, this Tao Lo, this fantasy world, this feels very Iron Fist to me. This is Iron Fist finds another realm where he gets his magical powers from. And it's a whole white savior story. So I get why they don't want to do that in 2021. Plus that Netflix show was not very good, but like, it does feel like they're trying to merge these two mythologies. And that's where these problems are coming because they don't have a strong, I guess, foundational background in the comics, which they usually do. And like here, like, again, a very obscure character. Now, I'll agree with you, Stuart. There are problems in this story that I feel like it's trying to do too much. I feel like going from parking valets in San Francisco to giant dragons flying through the air. Dragon valets? <laughs> is a little bit much for this movie. Now, other movies can make it work. The never-ending story, I never questioned Falcor. But here, I feel like it's trying to do too much and go too far into the fantasy land. I agree with you. These are problems I'm going to have later in the film, though. But right now, I do think some of this is left unexplained. Why isn't it bothering me so much? It's because in this film, the way it's going, do I need everything spelled out for me? I don't feel like I do. I'm getting the gist and having a good time. And what I would say to complement what you just said, I mostly agree with everything there, is the reason why you go from valet to fighting dragons in an alternative universe is because you're going with the lead character. Because he sells you, you like him, and you want to follow him wherever the hell he's going to go next. And the problem I'm having as this movie goes further and further is I'm caring less and less about Simu Lu. He's getting lost in the shuffle, frankly. Now we got a sister who's more badass and can put him on his ass in this arena. Is the sister from the comics, Jacob? Because I don't know of Shang-Chi ever having a sister, but then again, I know nothing about Shang-Chi. So I didn't read everything. I read about the first year's worth of the original, but then I did read a newer 2020 series that I, I, it might still be going on. I didn't re finish the arc, but it was called Brothers and Sisters, and he runs into his sister in it. She's got a different name. I do think like they're retconning stuff to maybe fit into the, the MCU a bit better, but originally he did not have a sister, but one has been introduced in the newer comic. And I don't feel like she can kick his ass, Stuart. I f he won't fight his sister. Oh, no, she definitely feels way stronger. No, I disagree. If he were to put up a fight, then I think he could win. And the way she knocks him out is a total sucker punch move. I mean, that is a total bitch fight move. Oh, no, I've seen enough of these kind of films where, yeah, the sister who comes from this repressed society that wasn't allowed to train, had to do it in secret, they're always the more badass ones. I... I feel like maybe it's because this movie's called Shang-Chi, but I feel like he could take her in a fight if he wanted to. He did not want to. Yeah, obviously he's not there to beat her ass. He didn't even want to compete in the arena. He didn't know that Katie was going to bet against him and is trying to stuff a big wad of cash in her fanny pack. <laughs> I am laughing during that, too. It should be said the only reason they want him to fight is because Cliff's video went viral. Yes. He's the bus boy. Everyone in the world wants to see his next match. And there's going to be a rematch because the Romanian, as he's being called, is dropping in here at this time. Razor fist. And here I'm getting my second favorite martial arts fight here. And again, it kind of feels Jackie Chan out on the scaffolding, the bamboo scaffolding. Yeah, wasn't wasn't that rush hour three? Two. <laughs> or yes. two? Yeah. <laughs> I remember exactly Chris Tucker dangling from that bamboo as it's breaking. <laughs> Which was bending just like Aquafina does here. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, it feels like they studied that and said, we're going to remake this moment. 
and you can do a lot better than the Rush Hour sequels. So if you take moments from them and put them in better movies, I'm happy. So you love this moment. I really like this fight a lot. I love the camera work on this fight. I like that sometimes we're seeing fights in reflection and we don't know it and that the camera swings around and we're seeing the front. This is a very visually exciting and honestly gorgeous fight scene. Yeah, no, I like this scene. Again, I wish with $150 million, uh, low budget for Marvel, they could have done more practical, more martial arts type stuff. But, you know, as an action scene, this works for me. You know who's really dis- maybe the most disappointing thing in this movie? Yes. Death Dealer. Yes. What a cool outfit. Like, that mask, everything. He's- we never find out who this is. Uh-uh. I-, I swore that was going to be like the mom's ghost or something. He's throwing dagger bombs. He's, he's the guy that taught Shang-Chi at age seven to kill. So this should really mean something. And I don't know who he is. And I thought maybe it was a role, maybe the outfit is passed down through generations. I mean, is this a 60-year-old dude fighting here? <laughs> or We'll never know. Yeah, I had the action figure for this for like a year because, you know, COVID. And I'm like, I can't wait to find out who this character is. This character is nobody but a cool outfit. And after Black Widow, where they unmasked Taskmaster to be that lame-ass child from the earlier in the movie, that disappointing reveal, I expected another reveal here when they took off the mask. Maybe that's why they cut it. Maybe they had a scene like that, and they're like, ooh, that didn't go over well in Black Widow. Let's cut it. Yeah, who could it be that was meaningful, though? Michelle Yeoh? Or I, I don't know what would matter. Grandma! If it, were, if it were Katie's grandma, that would shock the shit out of me. Again, I went into this movie thinking you'd unmask it, and it would be Aquafina. <laughs> okay, you're right. I Now I'm seeing that calculation. Yeah. Okay, so who is the villain of this movie? Because this is the point where the bottom kind of falls out of Winwoo, and we actually, he reappears, and we realize he's actually a pretty loving dad. We're going to get flashbacks to playing Dance Dance Revolution. He's given children permission to rebel against him, and now just needs him to come home. But he was not cruel. He gave up eternal life for family. He was a bad guy gone good. I do feel like Marvel, again, they're in phase four. They've had a while to fix this, but they're addressing their villain problem. They're they're trying to make, you know, a more complex villain, someone that has a sympathetic background. And yeah, they're, they're trying to address all those complaints people had for so many of their films. Okay, so just to follow this, I am supposed to dislike him in the beginning, like him when he falls in love, and turn against him when losing that love makes him bitter again although he isn't bitter again i i think you're supposed to even believe that he might be hearing his wife's voice behind that gate to me he's sympathetic he's doing the wrong thing for the right reasons so he's not a villain you're supposed to hate you're supposed to hate the creature that's manipulating him behind the wall but here he's not the villain he's an antagonist but not a villainous one what i heard them say is that power corrupted that the idea that all he wanted was power and that when he puts on those rings, he's actually the bad guy. And when he took off those rings, he's the good guy. So it's kind of weird that this is the story of Shang-Chi getting those bracelets. I did not hear that at all. I did not hear that putting on the bracelets takes you to the dark side. I No, but that's kind of what they imply. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean literally heard that. I'm saying in the narrative, in the subtext of this story, when he domesticated and put away his superpowers, it allowed him to be the good father. And only when he was wearing those rings is he a terrible person. See, and I took it as he was a good father because he put him away, not vice versa. Nobody had to 
pull them off of him. For love, he put them away. It was his choice. And here, he's putting them back on for love, thinking he can help rescue his wife. I saw it as putting it on to do some terrible bad when you should know you have her body. Like, this is not, there's no way that she's behind the gate unless you're going with the supernatural idea. Like, Which is what I think he was. You know that she's dead. There's no reason to believe that the people of Talo would be keeping you from her. Or at least you're going to have to expand upon the idea as to why they, that some rift, some Romeo and Juliet, you will never marry our Ying Li. Which is what they did. I mean, they banished him from Talo. They would have grown up together in Talo. Were they banished? I didn't see banished. I saw them walk away. I saw her make the choice not to be the guardian of the gate. No, he tells, admittedly, it's tell, don't show, but he tells how the people of Talo would not accept him because of the things he had done. And so if she was to be with him, then they had to leave Talo. Okay. And if he, and he thinks if they'd stayed in Talo, those people never would have come to kill his wife. They couldn't have gotten to Talo because it's hard to get to. And so he both blames the people of Talo and because he's hearing this voice. And understand, Talo is a different dimension. I don't know that that's driven home well enough in the film, but you're going to an alternate plane of existence. <laughs> no, I got that. I thought that was clear. Yeah, th- this is not the earthly realm. Yeah, but one that he shouldn't need an ice map for. They do this whole scene straight out of Inception <laughs> where they have water exploding in slow-mo and what have you because they put the two jade necklaces together. Again, that guy should have had the necklaces all along, but all of this complicated thing to get a map to a place he's already been to before. It's the map for the maze and knowing when it opens. How he got there the first time, I'm not sure. Yeah, this is where it gets confusing because we're going to have one group go there even though we're told it's not going to be ready to go there for three days and then yeah the bad guy's gonna go there three days later i don't understand the point of this map when you could just go there the maze is always there if you know the maze and morris does you can go anytime but the straight path only opens in three days okay well that's confusing because they show a windy maze path that's gonna open in three days but they also show like a raiders of the lost Ark glow on the straight path you see the windy path but you also see okay well when you have a windy path going it takes your eye away from the straight (laughs) path it's bad storytelling it's confusing visuals i'll agree with that yes Do we need all of this jazz maru to get to where we're going? I guess what I would say. I feel like what they're telling me is all of this other stuff has been just kind of a a waste of time running on a gerbil wheel. And really, the whole thing has been about, I want to go get my dead wife from behind a gate when I should know it's a soul-sucking demon. It becomes muddy at this point because the first hour of this film was really a martial arts Sean film. And it feels like we're going off into some mystical Sean Shi film in the second hour of this movie. It's a real tonal shift between hour one and hour two. And I think that tonal shift starts when we see Katie and Sean and Ji Ling, the sister, they get locked up. And who's with them? Trevor? Ben Kingsley? From Iron Man 3? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh my god, my audience cheered. I had such a big smile. This was a huge surprise. Like, did this leak out? I'd never heard about him appearing in here. I'm shocked if this didn't leak out that they were able to keep it a secret. I'm telling everybody I know who wants to see this movie, go see it because I know Trevor will become memes. 
Trevor memes will be out there like the Hail Hydra memes. And so you need to get to see this movie. See it this weekend or it's going to be spoiled. Before you know Ben Kingsley's Trevor is back. I mean, remember, and we talked about this back, I think, around the time of The Winter Soldier. After Iron Man 3, they put out a 15-minute one-shot. Back when home media used to matter. I really feel sad they don't do this anymore. When they made enough money off video sales that they could afford to do shorts and put them on the disc, there was All Hail the King, the story of Trevor in prison. (laughs) After being outed as, is he the Mandarin, isn't he the Mandarin? And it ends with the reveal, the real Mandarin is pretty pissed off you've been impersonating him, and the Mandarin's Ten Rings men are there to get Trevor, and is it implied that he's killed? They actually are keeping that in continuity. In prison, Trevor got off the smack and was taken by the Ten Rings. And the Ten Rings have kept him alive because they love his Shakespearean acting. Okay, I mean, again... MCU, uh, they do this humor. I get it. I will say that they addressed a concern I had, which I would only you only have if you're into all these films. But like, is this Ten Rings the same as that Ten Rings in Iron Man one? And I guess it is. And that the whole world was afraid of a chicken dish and an orange. But to bring Trevor back, I should probably amend for listeners who don't know me outside of the show. I have come to really enjoy Iron Man 3. I was so hard on that movie in our review. No, you should still be hard on it. I almost read Arrowed it. It's a problematic film, but I've really come to enjoy parts of it. The only thing I don't like is the Aldrich Killian extremist stuff. But all of the mechanic stuff, all so, and I don't like Tony's PTSD acting. I think Robert Downey was... So you don't like most of the plot. <laughs> what about the child? I actually like the kid. I, I like the kid... I like the Kid Tony stuff. I think it really does set up some character threads. My memory was you hated Trevor and we all did. Like, this is what's weird. We're getting nostalgic for things we didn't like. I have come to love Trevor. Trevor is my favorite part of that entire movie with his ole, 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 ole. I could appreciate the joke. Again, it just goes too far. The fact that he loves Planet of the Apes because he thought the the actors were real apes riding horses. Now your character's just stupid. Okay, that part was a little much. I'm laughing because it's funny because of how he tells the story and it's revealed. He's like a little kid. How did they ride the apes? They're actors. I want to be an actor. Actors can teach monkeys to ride horses. I mean, he's off the drugs. He should be a little smarter than this. But Ben Kingsley, it's so great to know the man has a sense of humor. Go back and watch All Hail the King again. His TV pilot for CBS, to see Ben Kingsley looking basically like Tom Savini in a cop show. I just love that Ben Kingsley can have a sense of humor. And here, what they do is canny. I really like this because Aquafina could become really annoying in this film. What they've chosen to do at the one hour mark is downplay her as the comic relief and start to give her a bit of an arc. She's starting to be affected by all that's happening to her. She's going to become a more serious character But they still want humor, so in comes Trevor to fill that part. And that, I think, keeps the movie from feeling stale. Yeah, and I guess it helps to have a chicken pig with no face. I thought I'd hate that thing. I mean, is this the Porgs of the Marvel Universe? (laughs) The design 
is so poor that they will never be poor, you know? <laughs> it is not a cute chicken pig. But when they sold that toy, I got a picture of it from Hasbro. They're like, post this picture. I'm like, I'm not going to post a picture. What is this butt that you have sent me a photo of to post? I'm not posting a butt. I thought it was literally the animal backwards. Now, I do like Morris. I think he's kind of cute and funny, but he'll never take over as a Porg or a Baby Yoda. They just did not invest in cute for that design. You're saying I'm hard on Simu Liu, but I actually feel really bad for him at this point. He's got to play like six string to a dancing winged butt and Ben Kingsley again. Because that was so funny the last time they did it. We got to do it again. I mean, talk about torpedoing your star vehicle. Like, who the hell is Shang-Chi at this point? It really does feel like a different film at this point <laughs> once Trevor is introduced. It does shift for me. And it, yeah, becomes less about Shang-Chi. Agreed. And I do not like the second half of this film nearly as much as the first half of this film. I like Trevor showing up in the prison cell. I like his story story. Yeah, if that was all it was, fine. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And I like their breakout. I like that they steal Razor Fist's truck, and all of a sudden I realize his name is Razor Fist. I'm having fun. Yeah, he's got it like painted on graf with graffiti style on the car. I don't know. That's silly. Once they get to Talo, and the, the whole dynamic has changed, and Shang-Chi, where is he in this movie? And is Michelle Yeoh, like, the only Asian actress of age that they can get? Because she already has a character in the MCU, thank you. She was in Guardians 2. Was she? As what? She was one of the Ravagers that was hanging out with Michael Rosenbaum and Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone was in Guardians 2? Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. So she is in the... MCU already is she like the only Asian actress that can they can find for this type of role <laughs> you're starting to sound like a Marvel Kool-Aid drinker like <laughs> she already had this part like nobody remember even she doesn't remember that she shot that Arnie like that was insignificant and now she has a chance to be meaningful in the big Asian Marvel movie I you get her because of Crouching Tiger and all of the things she's done have you seen my house, Stuart? Just just so we're clear, I am. I've drank the Kool-Aid. My skin has turned color because of the Kool-Aid. I have a Marvel tattoo. Do I need to go further? This is why I'm the fanboy on this podcast. Well, it, the reason why I bring that up is because I felt like your, lately anyway, your disillusionment in the direction of Marvel, that these new characters were not exciting. Yeah, you were not excited for this one, you said. No, I went in arms crossed. And so, again, Shang-Chi, I would say he's done very little to convince me other than I'll give you two big fight scenes in the first half of the movie. And where is he? He's like gone from the picture in the second half as more <laughs> ridiculous characters have shown up. Yeah, when we get to Tao Lo, I feel like a lot of that's about Aquafina finding her purpose in life, finding that thing she loves, which is, apparently is shooting bows and arrows. Yeah, I don't mind that other characters show up i don't find them ridiculous characters they are what they are but they're not silly it's not like they showed up and found that stupid ass person who trains uma thurman in kill bill everybody here is better than that beard pulling cliche oh please they found a flying butt and she's all of a sudden gonna be like oh your mom made you superhero outfits here try them on what okay this bugs me i mean the fact that it's like your mother knew you'd come one day and one wanted us to have a gift for you. Okay, that's fine. I'm good with that. Here are outfits that are exactly your size. I hope you didn't have a soda on the way and bloat because these are tailored exactly <laughs> to what we knew you would be. 
Well, more so, shouldn't this be like if Tao Lo, they wouldn't let the father in because of his horrible past? Like, shouldn't this be some big dramatic moment that Shang-Chi murdered someone and now, like, well, should we let him stay? Like, he has to show his worth. Like, some kind of character development, some kind of reckoning with his dark past needs to happen. I, I just don't feel like that ever happens here. There seems to me to be a far cry between being a thousand-year-old warlord and killing one person who killed your mom. But you get what I'm saying. You you have character development. You have have again for a hero you don't kill so let's come to terms with that and learn something from this magical village that's gonna make you the hero like i, I don't feel shang lee has that journey here jacob if you aim at nothing you hit nothing <laughs> that is what they have done they have just like eh, we're not gonna worry about even identifying him like what he's gone through how he's feeling who he's becoming he's gonna put on the goddamn bracelets and be shang chi and that's it don't worry about anything else. I can't totally disagree with that. This movie gets so muddied at this point, but he is still our point of view character. And so we have that going for us that we're still following him primarily as he talks to his aunt, as he gets the outfit, as they learn this clumsy story as if we haven't had enough flashbacks. Now we're going to get the flashback of the great protector and the demon who dwells in darkness, the dweller in darkness. I guess that's from the comics. It's a Doctor Strange bad guy, this dweller in darkness. Yeah. And all I know is I saw a dragon in that trailer and I'm waiting for Fin Fang Foom. So that's who I think the Dweller is. <laughs> no, I knew the Dweller wasn't Fin Fang Foom. I thought the Guardian would be Fin Fang Foom. And why it isn't is pissing me off. No, he's a bad guy. Who's Fing Fing Foom again? I remember this being discussed. Fing Fing Foom is a giant dragon that's actually an alien and he wears purple underwear and his race created the rings in the comics. So again, post-credit scene, we'll talk about it, but they're calling out to someone. Maybe they're saving Fing Fing Foom for a better story then. That I'll allow. Because I do have friends who were angry it wasn't Fin Fang Foom. Like, why are you bringing in dragons and it's not Fin Fang Foom? Really? Okay. But... <laughs> All of this with the great protector and things, and I here's where I feel like maybe it's losing me, and it's a personal thing, is stories about dragons and great protectors and things may play much better to a different cultural audience than America. And I'm specifically meaning an Asian audience that grows up with tales like that the way we grew up with tales of witches eating children. So maybe this is going to work a lot better on a different audience than me, but I'm not the dragon from the deep fights the monster from the dark and saves all of our people kind of audience. Yeah, I can't even recall a martial arts film that I've seen with dragons, unless you count the Great Wall, where Matt Damon teams up with a bunch of Chinese army soldiers to fight dragons. <laughs> I don't know if it counts as a martial arts film, but it counts as something, I guess. It was a movie that came out. It is, yes, available for consumption. I mean, I'm not hating this movie at this point. I'm not with this movie at this point. All the fun for me was taking place in San Francisco and Macau. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I was always struggling. And for the first half, I was like, I'm not feeling this. And when Trevor showed up, I'm hating this. So it's really Trevor that threw the film off for you. <laughs> it was the final break of just like, I don't want to watch this. I do think that, you know, you're talking about the worthiness of getting into Talo. Trevor did portray himself as a warlord. It would have been a little bit better had you given Trevor a funny imprisonment in Talo or something instead of just 
letting him arm up for war or whatever's going to happen with him. He, he basically Jar Jar Binks the ending. Why is he here? Like, I understand comic relief. I understand why they feel like callbacks and seeing a esteemed actor be goofy has an appeal commercially. What does this character accomplish in the big battle scene? He plays dead, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the joke. He does nothing. He was needed to get them to Talo, but after they're in Talo, he is totally useless. Okay, that's right. He translated for the butt, and the butt knew how to get there. <laughs> okay. And so why is Michelle Yeoh here? She's the sister of this dead woman that's not behind the gate, that dad is so convinced is behind the gate, and she can't tell him it's not the sister? Like, why? Like he, She tells him he doesn't believe her. Is he under a spell? Like, what happened here? The way I was trying to read this was I thought that he wanted to just conquer this place. That was really all that he ever wanted to do. But he was using the idea that your mother is behind there as some kind of ploy. But he's really delusional. At some point, I realized... This is a love story, Stuart. God, no, it's not. It is. He really does believe his wife's behind there, and he's so in love with her. I, again, I agree. Like, you, you got to wow. really sell this relationship wow. more than they have at this point for him to be this crazy to try to free her. But that's what they're telling us, that he is so in love with his wife, he's going to go knock these gates down. Yeah, okay. The Ten Rings is a terrorist organization who comes... And while Wen says, burn it down, when they will not allow him to quote unquote free his wife, burn it down, like kill them all. There's going to be a lot of people dead here, but all the 10 rings are armed with is stun batons and stun whips. They brought tasers to a knife fight. Laser crossbows or something. I don't even understand their weapons. Or something. Yeah. When people get hit, they don't die. They fall down and act like, you know, they've been tased. This is very G.I. Joe. Yeah. No one's going to die. No, well, but they're going to say a lot of people died, but I guess they died from the soul suckers. The Ten Rings didn't kill anybody. Right, yes. All of these people, I, I mean, I think we're even to think that Razor Fist is a good guy in the end here. Like, he is not uh, a villain. To, it's been really weird to try and track the villain in this movie. I've never had a beat on it. And it, I guess it just ends up being this one creature bursting through the dark gate. And the creature was manipulating Wawen. Right. What about the father-son stuff, though? Because I do like their fight that Shang-Chi had this beat where he tells Katie, I'm going to kill my father. He is coming to terms with it, and he's emotional about it. He doesn't just want to kill his father. He's not blasé about killing his father, but he needs to kill his father to stop him from destroying the world. And the father doesn't want to kill the son either. They're having this sparring match until... Shang-Chi says, what makes you think she'd want the man you've become anyway? And then he does this Harukin move and pretty much kills Shang-Chi. But I'm liking the drama between them. The only thing that I like in this at final act is the dynamic between Shang-Chi and Wenwu. And that is everything to me. I needed Shang-Chi again. If you're telling me he's a remorseful murderer from the age of 14 when he killed that one guy and he's come to terms and I'm never going to kill again, but now my father, he's so evil. I have to kill. Like, that's some great drama. I wish this movie could sell that. It doesn't to me. Again, it feels like Star Wars light. These rings are going to turn depending who's controlling them. They'll be orange or blue. It just feels like a lightsaber fight at some points to me. I'm not pulled in by this father-son drama. I wish I could track Shang-Chi. Again, we were told that he actually did do that killing. We didn't see it. And now he's going to kill his father. Well, I didn't see you kill anyone, so I don't believe you're going to do it. And so it just there's no reason at this point for me to think that this character is capable of anything other than watching Aquafina steal his movie. 
Yeah, I feel like for whatever he did, and if it was killed someone or just did something else, we should have seen Shang-Chi do it, and we should have seen this actor, Simu Liu, like dealing with the repercussions of it. And it ends up being an echo of what Crouching Tiger or Hidden Dragon was. I hear, Arnie, your problem with that movie is not that it was about family dynamics using martial arts. You didn't like the fight choreography. Here, because they fixed the fight choreography, you like the fact that it's a psychodrama between father and son as martial arts battle. Yeah, and again, I haven't seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 20 years. Maybe I'd feel differently about it today, but I remembered not liking it. And here I'm liking this stuff. I like, again, the power of the Ten Rings. I like the way these rings fight. Well, but first he's going to knock Shang-Chi into the water. And this is where Shang-Chi and his inner dragon, because they had a line saying you have the heart of a dragon, I guess it means a giant dragon is going to come out of the ocean and he's going to ride around on it. Which again, I feel like they are borrowing from the Iron Fist mythology because that is a dude that like bear hugged a dragon and took his chi from his heart. And they talked about the Great Protector being the dragon earlier. So, I mean, it's not like this dragon just appeared for the very first time here. The dragon saved them from the Dweller in Darkness a thousand years ago. It appears at a very convenient time, though. He appears when the Dweller in Darkness is getting out. He has one purpose in the world, and it's to kill the Dweller. So, I don't know what... He's going to be listless and, like, working as a valet at the end of this movie, because the Dweller's gone, the Protector has nothing to protect from. And then we have this very clumsy scene where these there's these little mini dragons are sneaking through the scales of this dark gate and grabbing souls. It's taking souls to feed to the great big dweller. <laughs> right. And so this is where we get this very, very, like, embarrassing, like, really reshoot this of where Razor Fist and everyone's like, we need to be friends and work together. Oh, th- this is so ridiculous because oh, yes, so we're bad. supposed to be having this big battle between Talo and the Ten Rings. It doesn't feel that epic. And then Razor Fist is just like, yeah, let's join teams now. We're, d- we're done fighting each other. And when we get to the end, I mean, Shang-Chi takes the rings. He has learned the martial arts of the Talo that his mother knew, which means he's able to take the rings away from his father. And he's got this big Harukan fireball ready to kill his father. And he can't do it. He can't kill his dad. This is stuff that is working for me on an emotional level. I I was going to say, Return of the Jedi did this better with Ewoks, but this film also kind of has its Ewoks with that chicken fig with no face. But I wish (laughs) it was on that level. Like, I wish I could get into this father-son drama. It it doesn't work. And again, I think what's meaningful in transpiring, we know the father's got to die for all that he's done. But it's the fact that he gives up his rings to his son. I think because the color changes, we're supposed to think that they won't be used for evil, that it's not going to be a quest for power now that Simu Lung's character is putting them on. They're yellow now and not blue. I literally took it as it's just the character's chi, you know, the the energy of the character. And But the rings could be used for good, could be used for evil, but Shaanxi is not an evil character. The rest of the battle, did either of you get like Black Panther vibes when these tiger monsters are being hit? And Yeah, I've totally felt Black Panther. We're, we're getting these weird creatures going and fighting in this battle and, and this big nonsensical fight between two dragons, just like two Black Panthers that I can't even track. Like th- this just all becomes noise to me by the end. The dragons in IMAX, I had trouble following the two dragons in IMAX. Now, when I saw it again, it was regular screen. I was sitting further back. I was able to follow this end fight perfectly. 
But the first time I saw it, these dragons whipping around each other and things. I mean, one is what? White and one's Cthulhu. Chong Chi's riding one like it's Falcor. I'm like, what is this never-ending climax? This is a long fight that once the dad died, I'm checked out. Yeah, the, the dad should have died and Shang-Chi should have just sealed that gate and we never saw the dweller. Leave that for another movie. Like, I, I don't want any of this end. Yeah, but it's a comic book movie. You need a big CGI beastie. I don't like I'm like, oh, no, are they going to like breathe into the air when we're going to get the glowy beam going into the air like so many bad comic book films? Yes. They don't go that far, but no. it's pretty bad. Like you have to check the box. This is what these movies do. Do you? Do you? <laughs> Jacob, I hear what you are saying. You're saying you want fresh ideas and creativity and not formula. But this is a factory and they know what has sold the previous incarnations I mean, so then why do we have to review every can of Coke if it's all made with the same formula? Like, that that's how I am feeling a little bit at this point. Like, what is the point if we're just going to get formulas? Jacob, you just woke up and realized after 12 years you're on Now Playing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've said this throughout these Marvel films. Like, that is a constant struggle for me because I'm like, I don't know. They're all the same. Like, it, it is a factory. They put out a decent product. Like, I buy Coke. But does that make it worth seeing if it's just the same thing over and over? And I guess I've always taken the opposite tack of they've always found a way to put vanilla orange in it or you know like diet it up somewhere like yeah that. which they've done they put some flavor in here with it being a martial arts fantasy which right. i've appreciated but it, like again like i don't care what flavor you give this kind of ending it's always going to just frustrate me yeah i'm not liking this ending a lot and i'm not liking any like even the supporting characters like if i'm supposed to be liking katie now that she's finally found her life purpose and can shoot arrows is she going to, like, go try out for the Olympics to be an archer? Like, what is her career path with shooting bows and arrows? I don't get this either. I like that she finds some purpose. I like that they bother to give the comic relief an arc where she's finally realizing she needs to stand up and that things are happening in the world that she needs to not just take as a joke, but that this novice archer who'd never held a bow and arrow before is going to get... What's basically the kill shot of this demon while the demon eats the dragon's soul and then Sean Chi's just gonna... Can he fly now? Was he flying or I don't... They could boost themselves with those rings. We saw the dad do that at the beginning. Yeah, but he's just like hanging in midair there. I'm like, I don't... I'm not watching Sean Chi. Come on, this, this movie's Sean Chi, but I ain't watching him. Well, he's the only one to watch when he finally kills the dweller in darkness. That he, he feeds him the bracelets and he gets a tummy ache that kills him. That's that's it. Yeah, we saw Katie shoot him and the, the sister did something. It feels like they're trying to do some kind of like Power Rangers multiplayer attack, but it, I guess it's ultimately, yeah, giving him that tummy ache with the rings. Yeah, this end fight, I'm just, both times I watch it, you know, I was just like, this has fallen apart at the climax. And what I wanted... I didn't want CGI dragons. I didn't want no. any of this. I wanted kung fu fighting. Absolutely. Right. You kept saying martial arts. I'm like, this ain't a martial arts movie. No, but it was sold as one. It was for the first half. Yeah. And so what has happened is very disappointing to me. Yeah, agreed. And it's oh, the good news is it's over really fast. They basically, Katie and Chong get back to San Francisco, and now Sue and John have to believe them that they're they've they're accomplished people because they're hanging with Wong. 
That Wong came back was great, though, right? I mean, he was Chekhov's Wong. He was in the beginning. I mean, this felt like the end of the Back to the Future, like Doc showing up. About your children. Like, we got to go and do something. We got to talk to you. We're not going to tell you what it is, but let's go. It leads directly into the mid-credits. It almost doesn't, it should be maybe the next scene. But uh, is this exciting? Is the prospect of Shang-Chi and Captain Marvel and a Hulkless Bruce Banner doing something in the future, striking a chord with you that gets you excited? Oh my God, yes. First of all, so many questions. So many questions. Why is Bruce Banner not Hulk anymore? I don't know. They'll tell us there'll be a TV show or a movie or an end credit scene or an extra on a DVD. Like, it will be explained. I don't... Yeah, they put this in here to get people to talk, get that social media buzz going, but I don't care. They'll tell us at some point. It's not a mystery I'm invested in, why the banner is back to human form. Captain Marvel, you're excited about Brie Larson again. The word excited isn't what I'd use. The only thing about Captain Marvel is A, the funny joke of Bruce has my number. I don't have her number. She just does that. I laughed out loud both times with that. And it helps me figure out, so if Endgame was 2024 and she had short hair, is this like 2025 because she now has long hair again? I'm trying to figure that out. Okay. At no point did I hear, I'm so glad Captain Marvel's back and I can't wait to watch her. Yeah. You're wondering about her hairdo. <laughs> yeah. Is she going to get the mohawk back or not? I don't know. Captain Marvel is not my favorite Marvel character. Captain Marvel is not my favorite Marvel movie. Yeah. And neither is Shang-Chi and neither is Doctor Strange. And the idea that this is some kind of you know, wet your appetite for what's next is the exact opposite. It is a very wet blanket falling on a franchise that used to be on fire in these scenes and now feels like anticlimactic. I'm more excited by seeing Captain Marvel and Bruce Banner than I am by the thought of where did the Ten Rings send their message. And I guess that's part of the Ten Rings sending their message, I think, is supposed to work like who is Peter Quill's dad worked in Guardians 1. And it doesn't work until, Jacob, you tell me that the Ten Rings came from Fin Fang Foom, and now I'm super excited that maybe it's leading us to Fin Fang Foom. Yeah, from his alien race, yes. Now I'm excited. You have excited me with the thought of Fin Fang Foom. <laughs> I was not excited before this. One more stinger. We forgot. I don't think we've mentioned her in the last half hour, but there was a sister. <laughs> she did stuff. She fought, I guess. <laughs> maybe. I don't know what she did. She had that little dagger on the rope. <laughs> yes, that's right. But she's now the head of the Tin Rings. The point is that she has been overlooked because she was a woman all this time. And now we're looking at her, maybe, if you bothered to stay to the end of the credits or didn't fall asleep. She's taken over the Ten Rings. She's a crime lord now. And so that's setting up the future. Are you excited? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings? Jacob. Can we just recommend the first half? Because that is the best part of this film. Like, that, that's the disappointment for me is like, I thought all you got to do is a magical fantasy martial arts film. And they do do that. They have dragons. They have, I think, Ninetales from Pokemon show up when they get to Talo. But I feel like so much of this film, especially the second half, is where it falls apart for me. And it feels like they're yelling lyrics of Hotel California to confuse me. That They think that the apes are actually riding horses. Like, it totally loses me, that second half. But that first half, again, it kind of works as Crouching Iron Man, Hidden Tesseract. Like, that, to put that in the Marvel 
cinematic universe. I appreciate that. We, we talked about, is this just another flavor of Coke? Sure. Is, is it one that I would recommend? Like, because, yeah, Diet Coke I like, Coca-Cola I like, Coke Zero, Cherry Coke, all those. Do I like this flavor of chi-flavored Coke? And, and again, that first half, that's the stuff to watch. Like, and even that second half, like, it's a Marvel film, and we're getting dragons, and we're getting weird creatures, and I kind of appreciate that. Like, now they feel confident enough to tap into all that weird stuff. This one, it's not totally cohesive or coherent by the end, though. Again, which I would give this a weak recommend, just again because I want to promote doing new flavors of Coke. This is still a bad origin story. Like that—that that is the part of this this formula that Marvel needs to figure out how to do these origin stories. This one, again, we, we've seen all of this before. We've seen it done better, in fact. But this one's all right. It, it's it's a weak recommend, but. Again, I, I like that they're trying to tap into martial arts and, and bring that stuff into the Marvel Universe, so I'll give it a participation trophy for that. <laughs> Again, weak recommend. Stuart. I laughed only once during Shang-Chi, but it was a hearty one. When Aunt Nan tells her nephew, you are a product of all that came before you, no <laughs> truer words have been spoken. You know, Marvel once was in the business of bringing classic comic book characters to life. They had the touch to instill it, to make you believe in that stuff and make you laugh and enjoy it. And here it feels like factory assembly line. You used to talk about cans of Coke. Yeah, it's like a, a reality show or like who wants to be the next superhero. This is not an origin story. It is a product being spat out of a machine. And that's sad to see. It's to be expected. I mean, you do enough movies as Marvel has. And yeah, some of them are going to come out. There are things that don't come out right that they have to throw in the defect bin. And I think the reason why this one has to go is Simu Liu. He's just not up to the task of being a charming leading man. Maybe he can fight. Uh, he has two scenes to do that. And they were sandwiched in between a whole lot of events where he was background character. And the fact that he couldn't pull focus from the ridiculous claptrap to onto him and had to wear those bracelets and zap people, it's a problem. It's a problem that he is our hero. But it is not the only problem. If you recall my review of Black Panther, I cited the title character as the weakest thing about that movie. Black Panther was far less interesting than his sisters or seeing this whole technical... Yeah, the Wakanda, the whole idea that the African society was advanced and not primitive. All of that stuff was so cool. Where is any of that here in Shang-Chi? I mean, the sister is not good. The supporting character, I'm not going to knock Aquafina, but you don't want a whole movie of her. And she's been like burdened with having to drag all of this until, yeah, as you say, pass the baton to Ben Kingsley. It's really sad when you consider the fact that we're living in a time where there's awful things going on, awful violence being perpetrated on Asian American communities. We needed, just as we needed a black superhero four years ago, we needed Shang-Chi right now. And Marvel missed this moment. And it hurts. But he's a lame character with lame powers in a lame movie. And it's a bunch of junk. I hated it. One of the worst Marvel things ever. Strong disagree. I mean, if the whole movie was the first half, Jacob, I'm with you. The first half I felt was great. I wish the main character had a little bit more focus, which is something that could have been fixed in the second half if the movie had continued on that path. But I really loved the first half here. Simu Lu grabbed me, and it took me from 
who the hell is this Shang-Chi to, wow, I really like Shang-Chi. I cannot believe it. Then the second half of the film, when they got to Talo, it did slow down. It hit the brakes. It hit some bumps. There were some fun moments. I love Trevor in it. I love Trevor teaching the turkey pig to play dead. I really have fun with those times. I like Aquafina in this. I do like seeing her get to be an archer. I mean, it was, I wish there was more there there. But again, I really just grafted onto the Shanxi Wawen struggle there. That's what got me and kept me going through the film. But had it been the first half for two hours, this would probably be up there with Iron Man 1 and Civil War in my mind. I mean, that's how good that first hour is to me. The second hour hurts it, but it doesn't wound it terribly. I mean, you're going to talk about rankings. To me, this is second tier Marvel, and there's like four tiers of so far. To me, top tier is going to be Civil War, three of the four Avengers movies, the first Iron Man, Winter Soldier, the first Guardians. This is in that second tier with Guardians 2 and Spider-Man Homecoming and that kind of thing. And Black Panther, for that matter. I put that as a second tier. And so it's a movie I'm definitely going to revisit. It's a movie I can definitely recommend. It's a movie I like. I just wish I loved it. Yeah, and I think my ranking is similar to you, Arnie, but I, I think you probably hold even your second tier more esteem than I do. Like to me, yeah, Black Panther, Ant-Man, like it's, it's down around there where it's passable. Ant-Man to me is third tier. See, that's still passable to me. So I call it, you know, there's the strong recommends and then there's the passable stuff and then you get into not recommend <laughs> territory. But so this is, it's still recommend, but it's, yeah, it's Ant-Man. Mm, Ant-Man. If only. I'm pining for Ant-Man. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's great to be, do this show with you guys because you guys always give me the perspective. When I left the theater, I thought we were all united. Like, I felt the entire crowd with me of grumbling. Like, there was some, you know, it's only one person, but you know how some people after a movie talking can color your perception? It's this woman going on at great length and with four-letter words about how bad the sister was and how did she get that job and why did they let her on screen? And I just felt like, <laughs> wow. wow, this crowd is turning. Like, Marvel's losing it. That's what I really walked away feeling, is that they've missed a step here. And after Black Widow, I would be nervous. Out of, after my IMAX, I literally heard two teenagers talking about how this is the best Marvel movie ever. Two white teenagers, I would say. And I'm like... They're losing it. Best Marvel movie ever. Oh, wow. Yeah, Marvel is, they're happy, I guess, about the box office this is bringing in. Though, you know, they were happy with Black Widow until Space Jam beat it the second week. So next week will really tell us the story. But Jacob, 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 this box office is amazing. Amazing box office. In a non-pandemic year, this would have broken a record. This is the highest Labor Day weekend ever by more than double. Yeah, it's a Labor Day record, though. That's not a great weekend. <laughs> Yeah, you know that they don't release movies intentionally on Labor Day because they know people don't go to the movies. Yeah, Labor Day weekend is when I got to see a Marvel marathon comfortably over the span of four days and go home and sleep and shower in between because they didn't release a new movie on Labor Day. But here they actually put out a new movie on Labor Day. Halloween, Rob Zombie's first Halloween has held the record as top Labor Day gross at $30 million. Yeah, which should tell you something about Labor Day. This is like when a cheap horror movie is like, we had the best Tuesday in the third week of March ever. 
Yeah, help me out with the number. What I didn't even read. The, what so what? What's the box office? Eighty-three million. Yeah, that's very good. They should be happy with that. That is very much a success. Eighty-three million in a pandemic on Labor Day weekend is a massive success. Yeah, we'll see what their story is next week. Again, Black Widow was a massive success until the second week. And more importantly, we'll just see how this settles. Like, yeah, the hype machine is what it is, and there was no competition, and for lots of reasons, people turned out for this. Will it stay with them? I'm hearing you say, Arnie, you like Shang-Chi when he fights. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Shang-Chi 2, where they keep it a martial arts film, but I do like the... Ten Rings powers as well. I think that the whipping, flying, jumping power of those is a lot of visual fun to watch. But I also like some kung fu, so I hope he doesn't rely only on the Ten Rings from now on. Yeah, the the success of this film tells me, again, Marvel is a great brand. Because, again, it's not that different than The the Great Wall, which is a pretty corny movie. But if this wasn't a Marvel film, no one would have seen this. This wouldn't be making $83 million. Correct. Like, it's it's because of the brand. No one was excited for this character. And I, I say that hyperbolically. I know there's probably a few Shang-Chi fans out there. But really, no, like, none of us knew. Like, I've been reading comics since I was 12. I didn't know who this guy was. If you'd allow me to bring in identity politics, don't you think there'd be some Asians who were excited to finally have an Asian superhero? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm sure there is some identity politics and probably even some that aren't Asian that like this character. I No doubt there are fans. I wanted it for it to be successful for that reason. And again, is this the worst one? I pause only because Thor and Incredible Hulk are such distant memories. I don't remember those. Oh, things. no, those are much worse than this. <laughs> easily. Yes, easily. I think the more important thing is, what am I excited for anymore? And with this franchise, the, the truth is, it's the TV stuff. Come on, you're not excited to watch the Eternals sit around for an eternity and not do anything in the Marvel Universe? It's my last hope, right? Like, they have an Oscar-winning director with good actors promising to do something that hasn't been seen before. This had an Oscar-winning actor. Who? Ben Kingsley. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pretend he's not even in this. Continue to just ignore that he was even there. But my point is that if I have my druthers, I don't think Marvel's over, but I think I'd rather stay home and watch Disney+. Plus. I enjoy those series much more. Yeah, WandaVision, Loki, much more enjoyable than this. And the Black Widow and this, and the stuff that they have teasing about Cap- Captain Marvel and her friend and whatever. No, I don't want any of that. I gotta say, the thing for me is Spider-Man No Way Home. That has me really, really, really excited. Eternals? Oh boy, I'm scared of Eternals because it just does feel, not used to it, but others I've heard feel like they're on the hater train, like they're happy to see Marvel fail. You had it through Endgame, now it's time for the bashing. And Black Widow, it certainly doesn't help the argument against that. And Shang-Chi, I think, is an argument against that, but others are siding with you and saying it. And the Eternals is going to be, you know, three strikes you're out in the view of a lot of people, I'm afraid. The funny thing is, it's the one that I'm holding on to because it does seem like of all of the, of all the things you're laying out to me, it's the one opportunity to go somewhere totally different with people that I've trusted make good movies before. Otherwise, it's just going to be the same old, same old, which again, that's formula. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I, I do feel like we've had two bad movies in a row. And it's really important for me to feel a spark again. I want to be excited when I go to the movie theater, or I just want to stay home and watch TV then. 
you think that Eternals might be the first Marvel movie you not recommend? Oh, yes. Judging by the second trailer. If the second trailer looks worse than the first trailer, and the first trailer looks so bad. And so, yeah, I think there's reason to be worried. I am worried about Marvel, but I'm not willing to bury it, and I know that they've got the track record to prove that they can pull out of this slump. But to me, it's a slump. Well, maybe so, but I don't think Eternals is going to be the movie to pull it out. Maybe I'm wrong. I went into Shang-Chi thinking I was going to hate it, and I came out surprised how much I now like Shang-Chi. And the funny thing is, Marjorie was making fun of me maybe five, six years ago because I was buying all these Marvel statues and all these Marvel toys. And she's like, what do you like about the Rhino? I'm like, the Rhino's a great character. My God, I've read so many comics with the Rhino. I love the Rhino. She's like, tell me a character you don't love. And I thought about it for a second. I went, Shang-Chi. Actually, I said Shang-Chi because that's how I thought it was pronounced. I went, I don't like Shang-Chi. I'm never going to own anything Shang-Chi. And I thought for sure that that was like a safe bet that Shang-Chi would never be anything. And now here I am like, Shang-Chi, that's a good movie. It's second tier. Get me that Katie Hot Toys with the exclusive bus wheel. <laughs> but you know where I see the salvation is a one-two punch of Spider-Man, No Way Home, they, the trailer's out. Alfred Molina is back. Strangely enough, that trailer wasn't previewed in IMAX. I didn't see it. And it looks like Willem Dafoe is back. I don't know. I, as far as Marvel properties go, I'm excited for Woody Harrelson to be back and let there be carnage. Oh, yeah, but I'm talking MCU, but yes. Yeah, I, th th yeah the most excited thing I am is about turds blowing in the wind in that Sony property. <laughs> but then also, not long after Spider-Man... We're going to get Thor Love and Thunder, which I can't wait for. Taika back in the Thor realm with the Guardians and Thor together. These are films that I am hyped for, not Eternals. Okay. Well, you've never not recommended a Marvel movie. Correct. Although sometimes I think perhaps I should have not recommended Dark World. But you know what? I always go back to... It sounds like it. The only thing I liked about Dark World, the reason I recommended it was Loki. And every time I go back to Dark World, the thing I like about it is Loki. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see what they do. And uh, that's November. But we've got a little bit of ways before we get back to the Marvel Universe. We're going to The Haunting again. We will be going back to Shirley Jackson's Hill House, only this time with the aid of Jan de Bont and Steven Spielberg. The Haunting 1999 is our movie next Tuesday. Big summer blockbuster. Liam Neeson, Jan de Bont, Steven Spielberg, Stephen King. Owen Wilson, Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's an event, but I'm not sure it turned out the way that they hoped. Notorious Film will explore all of that next week. And this Friday, uh, if you become a September patron and have stayed with us, we are doing another patron request, a little horror movie to get us ready for Halloween, Jennifer's Body. Yeah, this was suggested by a patron, chosen by one, and we're just taking a little break from our silver donation series to cover that before we get back to home invasion films as well. Yeah. A lot going on always on our Friday shows, but thanks for being here with us always, week after week. We're so appreciative to have the listenership that we do. And the supporters we do who enable us to keep doing this show week after week. Our donation drive is going on. We did just review the new Candyman film. That review is out for donors and patrons right now. 
And our new donation drive just got underway. We're reviewing Don't Breathe, You're Next, and The Strangers at Silver Level. The two Strangers reviews are already out there. And then in just a few weeks, our Platinum Level will start with A Quiet Place and A Quiet Place Part 2. That one just hit 4K Blu-ray, I noticed. I got my order in. And then Bird Box and then our Gold Level will start in November, shortly after Eternals. Paranormal Activity, one of the most requested retrospective series in now playing history. We're finally getting to it because the new Part 7 is coming out. You can find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. But if you haven't donated yet, I really think our discussion of Candyman, having been the one who edited it, was a really good conversation. And I hope you all can join us for it. I agree. It was a lot of fun. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And while we have a lot of movies between now and then, Marvel Studios will be back in November when the The Eternals Assemble! For listening to this episode in the now playing Avengers retrospective series. Lucky for us, we got the best seats in the house. Part of our Marvel Comics movie retrospective series. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Head to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear reviews of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. From Iron Man to Guardians of the Galaxy to Endgame, we've reviewed every Marvel film at nowplayingpodcast.com. Good luck keeping up. And while at our website, you can find reviews of other Marvel movies, including the Fox X-Men, Deadpool, Daredevil, and Fantastic Four films, New Line Cinema's Blade Trilogy, The Punisher movies, Sony's Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and Venom films, and dozens more. I'm bringing the party to you. You can also find reviews of every DC Comics movie, plus hundreds of other movie reviews of series like A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Fast and the Furious, Ghostbusters, Jurassic Park, and more. Find over 1,000 in-depth movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Subscribe to Now Playing on your podcast app of choice and get an all-new movie review every single week. We're gonna knock their socks off. Want even more Now Playing reviews? By being a Now Playing patron or donor, you can get two reviews each week. Is it too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. Now Playing is an independent podcast without any sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep our show going. Are you going to step up or not? Donate to our show, and as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. 
Supporters get perks including bonus podcasts every Friday, the ability to listen to us live, and you can even pick a movie for us to review and join us on the podcast. We need heroes. We need you. Find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's a small price to pay for salvation. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash nowplaying to see what our hosts are watching when we're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. It's strange. Maybe. Who am I to judge? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Well, multi-platform global operation. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He's pretty good at that. Right? Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Cat. I'm always angry. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Are you making your voice deeper? No. <gasps> you are. just did it again. You're the gun, This man. is my voice. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. You really think just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. On behalf of the Time Variance Authority, I hereby arrest you for crimes against the sacred timeline. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Hey, fellas. Hey, wait, where are you going? I've got so many more stories to tell. Is this what you wanted? I... I di- haven't watched Doctor Who since I was a kid with you, and it was, what, Tom Baker? So I don't really see Hiddleston in the Tom Baker role. No, There was no Tom Hiddleston walking around. No variants had porcupine quills, which is one of the things I remember most is Tom Baker with porcupine quills as an evil nemesis. Okay. Not one... I feel like Dr. What, because I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. <laughs> yeah, he's remembering a pretty obscure episode of Doctor Who. But hey, we know what we know. And yeah, <laughs> Doctor Who has continued, Arnie, since the early 80s. It's quite a popular show with some. I, yes. Well, I don't know who Simi Lu is, but Simu. I did look up like... What is it? Simu Lu. Simu? Simu Lu. Simu? Simu Lu. Okay. I don't know who C- I don't even know how to say his name, apparently. <laughs> you don't know shit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who Even though it looked like a Marvel Arts film? Mar- Marvel Arts.